All right, you good? Yep. All right, let's do this thing. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording live under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Erica Bogan. Now, Erica, I had the privilege of meeting at a Spartan race, and we'll probably tell you a little bit about all of that in the coming minutes. But... I want you to know that Erica is a trauma-informed mindset coach, among many other things. And so I think her story is really going to knock some socks off today. Uh, For those of you guys who have been through some hard things and experienced some difficulties, I think Erica will be right up your alley. She's definitely been there, done that, and she's helping other people through their journey as well. So welcome to the show. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate you having me on your show. I'm super excited. Well, that makes two of us. That makes two of us. I, you know, obviously when we met at the Spartan race and we can get into that later, I knew there was something special about you. I, I felt like we vibed just kind of immediately. And then, you know, kind of off mic, we were talking about why that might be. Um, but I before see. we jump into all that, I think one of the things that's really crucial when we're wanting to influence and help and motivate other people is that they know a little bit about where we come from and how we became the people that we are. So maybe we could just take a couple minutes if you're open to it and just share a little bit about your early childhood, where you're from, uh, what was it like growing up for uh, young Erica? Absolutely. So I actually am from a little bit of everywhere. Um, My father was in the Air Force. Um, as I was growing up. So I'm a military brat. Um, I didn't necessarily have a home base. Um, I do tell people now that I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, um, because that is the place that I have lived the longest in my entire life. Um, I've been actually currently live in Charlotte and have been here for 20 years. Um, Growing up in the military um, was a gift. I now see in my adult life the way that that helped set me up for the career path that I eventually took. Um, And and being a life coach, um, I'm able to build rapport with people pretty quickly. Um, And um, a lot of my friends say that I'm a charmer, that I charm people. Um, But I, I really just believe that from being the new girl all of the time, Um, I very early on in life had to learn how to make friends and be accepted everywhere that I went. And um, so, yeah, now it's it's super easy for me to to meet people and connect with them. Um, A lot of times I think that I embarrass my kids and some of my friends because everywhere I go in public, I find a way to start up conversations with complete strangers. And then they usually end up being friends. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I I definitely contribute that to being a military brat. Um, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I grew up in the military and was able to be introduced to people from all different cultures and walks of life and be able to connect with them. Very cool. Yeah. I know a lot of people uh, uh, say that growing up in the military is sort of a blessing and a curse. You know, you get to see a lot, but by the same token, you're always leaving friends behind, but it sounds like you've sort of switched it and changed the story and made it such like you had an opportunity to develop a skill to, to, to sort of connect with people in a, in a shorter period of time, maybe. Absolutely. Um, I'm somebody that I, I, I think that when I was young, I had a hard time leaving people behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my adult life, I have come to learn that, you know, when we pass, cross paths with people, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're supposed to serve in our lives, our entire lives. Right. Um, sometimes it's for a season, but there's always something 
that we have to give and learn from each other. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm it makes it easy. I'm sorry. No, I mean, it's okay. it's okay. it, it makes it makes it easy um, for me that when when somebody moves on, um, I'm like, it's okay. Their work was done, or my work was done, <laughs> whichever one, or it might have been simultaneously that we were. Um, giving each other something. So yeah, exactly. I got a little excited when you said that because one of my mentors one time was telling me about relationships. And one of the things that uh, he mentioned was that, you know, uh, sometimes the perfect relationship lasts four hours, you know, and it's, uh, as I didn't, yeah. I didn't understand it when I was younger, but when I got older, it's exactly as you say, you know, people come in and, you know, all relationships serve some sort of purpose or they don't exist. And then when they Absolutely. cease to serve that purpose, they go away. And so when you said that, my mind immediately traveled to that place in time and, and I was, I was taken there. So yeah, very, very, very that. cool stuff. So were you both your parents in the military or just one or the other? Nope. Just my father. Um, and my parents actually divorced when I was young. Um, and so I, I actually, um, also, look at that as a positive thing. Um, most people would look at divorce as a positive thing, but I do um, because it definitely um, helped me, um, I think, grow and mature emotionally um, and also become a little bit more independent. Um, I didn't always be, my dad was who raised me. Um, my mom has always been in my life, um, but I always resided with my father until I was a teenager. Um, and then I, I moved up with my mom. Um, but I, um, I learned how to be self-sufficient um, because my dad was a single father and he worked a lot to be able to support me and take care of me. And so I was a latchkey kid. Um, and uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think maybe some people could perceive it as bad, but um, it, it caused me to be independent um, at a young age and kind of be able to even entertain myself. Right. Right. Yeah. So you said your father brought you up. So that's a little bit different yeah. from a lot of single parent experiences. Uh, I think a lot of kids end up with mom. So what was the situation there? Um, just my dad, I think, um, was more stable, um, as far as obviously had always had a secure place to live being in the military. Um, I, I like to call the military housing military projects because it's like <laughs> growing up in the projects, but way cleaner. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, yeah, my, my dad is my mom. I love my mom and my dad equally, but obviously have different bonds with both of them. And, um, with my dad, it's always, um, always wanting to make sure that I make him proud because I saw him struggle on so many different levels um, as a single father. And um, yeah, so it's, it's always been a, a very important thing for me to always know that my dad is proud of me. Um, and I know that he is. Um, and, and same with my mom. My mom, though, was more, and I think this is definitely a mom role. Um, I was more apt as a young girl to talk to my mom about what was really going on in my life, um, as opposed to my dad, especially when I got into um, starting to, to to find boys attractive and being interested in boys, you know that that was that was mom conversations. Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely very strong relationship with both my mom and my dad, just different bonds. Right, right. What do you think uh, if you look back on that part of your life when you're coming up with dad, what do you think some of the biggest lessons were that that he imparted? Um, 
that you have to work for everything that you want. You know, I, I, I saw my dad um, come from, you know, being a, a lower paid, a, a lower, um, uh, oh gosh, a lower rank in the military all the way up to, I think that he was master sergeant or maybe above master sergeant when he retired. Um, and then now seeing him in his life today and, and the life that he has built. Um, my dad did remarry. And um, so I have a stepmom and I have two siblings from that marriage. Um, but seeing the life that he created um, my whole time growing up. And so, you know, when I was young, it was a struggle. And there were times where um, my dad couldn't get the things that I wanted. I always had everything I needed, um, but not necessarily everything I wanted. And he really instilled in me um we have to work for those things. Even when I was young and couldn't get a job, there were things that he held me accountable to. And, and that was always, you know, making sure that I had good grades. School was always at the forefront of everything. And um, something that I'm very, very thankful for and that I hope that I have also instilled in my children um, because I am a single mom. And um, a lot of the lessons that I learned being raised by a single dad I was able to apply um, with my own children and um, knowing that we might not be able to get everything that we want, um, but we have everything that we need and being a little less materialistic, I guess. Um, so with, with my girls, my kids, you know, our big thing is, has always been making memories together. And so, no, I might not always be able to buy them gifts, but are they really going to remember what they got for their 10th Christmas over us going and making a memory together? And they're going to remember that. And so having teenage daughters is, is tough, especially in, in, um, in this generation. And so I'm very, very thankful that the things that my dad instilled in me um, that I've been able to carry over and now see in my blossoming um, young ladies, <sighs> my, my, uh, middle daughter actually will be 18 this year. And so it's, it's really prominent with her. Um, you know, she's, she's at the age where she wants everything when she wants it and, um, being able to see her give me that grace and go, you know what, mom, you're right. That's something that I want. I don't need it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So as a, as a single parent mother who was uh -huh. raised by a single father, you know, there's a lot of conversation around making sure that children receive, you know, like a, a well-rounded sort of influx of both male and, and male and female energies when they're growing up. You know, do you see any challenges with that or have you had to face any challenges kind of being both mom and dad or, you know, the yin and the yang in the relationship? I, I'm, I have. So my my girls actually have different fathers and um, I have my, my youngest daughter's father. Um, him and I do, and as well as his wife, um, we all do things as a team and as a big family. Um, we, we have dinner together. We celebrate birthdays together. We celebrate Christmas together. They actually have um, a child that's theirs as well, besides my daughter. Um, and we do. We all do things together. Their daughter together. I mean, there's never, um, before I leave their house, there's always I love yous, you know, because we're one big family. Um, with my... Other two girls, it was a little bit different. Their fathers were not as, um, as they didn't play um, very active roles in the girls' lives when they were growing up. And so I, what I found challenging 
was um, being the disciplinarian as well as that cushion to fall on after <laughs> the said discipline was done right. um, and finding a really good balance between that um, and, and constantly wanting them to know that um, obviously I, I demand their respect um, and want them to respect me, but I never want them to fear me. I also want them to know that after they've been disciplined, that I'm there to love on them and explain to them why they were disciplined because it's, it's not mistakes, it's not failures and it's nothing bad. It's all learning experiences. Mm-hmm. And, um, I actually had, I faced a little bit of adversity as my girls were, were growing up when they were younger. So now they're, um, my oldest daughter is going to be 22 this year. Um, and then I have, like I said, an almost 18 year old and a 15 year old. So the two younger ones are in high school. Um, and I can see in hindsight now, Um, I used to get a lot of slack for, you know, other people, um, saying, you know, you're not their friend and not realizing that what I was doing was building an open, um, I was paving the way for them to always have open communication with me. Mm -hmm. Um, my girls respect me very much, but they also know that, yes, I am their friend and I am their comfort and I am going to be there for them. Um, sometimes they tell me everything to a fault (laughs) where I'm like, Oh, didn't really want to know that, but thank you for telling me. Um, especially now that they're getting older. Um, but I'm thankful that I did that when they were younger and that they knew no matter what, even when they messed up that I might initially be upset with them, but I'm going to give them the grace and, and, and have patience with them and use it as an educational opportunity this is why we don't do this again (laughs) type scenario. Um, and, and I'm glad that I didn't listen to the naysayers and, um, who would try to pound it in my head that I can't be their friend and their mom. Um, because I, I, in my experience, I didn't find that to be true. Um, I think that again, there's a gray area there. Um, I can't be their friend where I'm out hanging out with them. Um, and uh, now that they're in their teen years, I would never be the mom that parties with my kids. My kids don't party, thankfully. Um, but if they did, I would not be that mom. Right. Um, so there are some boundaries there. Um, but knowing that they could come to me with anything and everything. Um, there was actually an incident that happened about a year ago with my now 17-year-old. Um, I had been um, a single mom. Things can be tight financially. And so when they get things... Um, it's usually one thing, but it might be more expensive. So the thing that I'm talking about in this scenario is actually AirPods. My, my daughter wanted AirPods so bad. And um, I saved up and saved up and I got them for her for her birthday. Um, well, she thought that she lost one on the school bus. And she said initially she was scared to tell me because she was afraid she was going to get yelled at and I was going to lose my crap on her (laughs) because they were a lot of money and I definitely didn't have money to replace them. Um, so she, she hesitated to tell me, but then she said she thought about it and she remembered past experiences of being afraid to tell me something and then eventually opening up and sharing with me something and the way that I handled it. She's like, mom might be upset at first, but I know she's going to appreciate me telling her the truth. And that just meant the world to me. Um, And and it's funny because when she told me, um, I actually stayed really calm. And I said, well, 
The only thing that I can tell you is tomorrow morning, check with the bus driver, see if maybe you dropped one and he found it. Um, who knows? We could get really lucky and maybe that's what happened. Um, and I said, you know, worst case scenario is that we never find them again. Um, and you're just going to have to be patient and we will find a way to get you some more, even if that means you working a little extra and helping me do that, because I will tell you that I will not pay for full price for another pair of AirPods. And so that was, I guess, the consequence to not keeping up with them. But I did also explain to her that she's human. It's not like she purposely lost them. Um, dear God, that's like a lifeline to her. And so me giving her that grace and, and reassuring her that she's human and things like that happen. Um, she actually started crying and it's like, Mama, I love you so much. I was so scared. I was so scared that you were going to flip out on me. And um yeah, it was it was it was a beautiful moment for her, for her and myself to be like, all right, the things that I've instilled in them, it, it's worked. Yeah, for sure. And um, they're learning grace. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting that uh, just from that one incident, you pulled out like, I don't know, four or five lessons just <laughs> just now. <laughs> you know, you're, 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 you're yanking out all these lessons. And it's funny because obviously it's something that you thought about, you reflected on. And mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people today don't take the time to just examine what's happening in their lives. And, and it's so easy to do when you, I mean, anything can, anything that you experience can be used as a teaching moment or a learning moment, depending on your state of mind in that, in that place. But, absolutely, you know, you obviously with your daughter imparted many, many lessons. And uh, to go back to what you're saying earlier about being friends with them versus not being friends with them or being just a mom or what have you, I think a lot of people refer to that sort of uh that sort of dynamic as being, you know, like, well, I'm friends with my kids if I, you know, if I go out and party with them kind of a thing. But mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you think about it, really, it's like you're a mom or you're, you have some authority or influence over this other person whom you're grooming to go into the world, you know, and you want to be friendly, but not necessarily mm -hmm. their friend. Right. So, like, so I think Correct. a lot of people think being friendly means that you're their friend. Well, not, not necessarily. You're you're still in that position that yeah. you've been charged with the responsibility of raising another human being <laughs> to be a productive member of the world, right? But uh, that doesn't mean you have to go out and, and drink and party with them or even encourage that. Correct. In Correct. Well, and it varies. <laughs> it varies too surrounding um, each individual's belief system, right? Sure. Because um, everybody's raised differently, and a lot of times the belief systems that we raise our own children by are the same ones that we were raised by yep. and not to say that there was ever my, my parents are, are wonderful parents and I am so blessed to have both of them, but I recognize certain things. Um, so remember me saying that I would talk to my mom about things, but not my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that was my dad was, he was, he was a soldier. He was in the military. Um, and my dad actually had a hard life himself growing up. He was raised by a single mom and they were very poor. And, um, so my dad was, um, not as, um, I, I think it was more empathetic. It's funny because now um, my dad is older. My dad is one of the most empathetic, compassionate people that I've ever met. Um, but I think that there was a different dynamic too. I was his daughter. And um, so for me, um, I recognized that when I was young, that I so wanted to be able to freely talk to my dad. And it's funny because when I've said that to my dad in my adult life, my dad was like, honey, you could have told me anything. 
But of course, I didn't view it that way because he was also my disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. And my dad disciplined different than I do with my kids. Right. Um, I have always kind of, now when they were little, I can't say that they didn't get a little smack on the butt or on the hand if they were doing something that they weren't supposed to repeatedly. I mean, obviously, that was what worked for my kids. Um, but I, I didn't ever really ground them. Um, I would get my kids where it hurt. And because they were coming up in the generation of technology, usually that was simply taking their phone away um, <laughs> when they got to a certain age and, oh my God, their life was over. Um, but I, I did things differently and I wanted my kids to always have open communication. I want to know what my kids are doing. And I also want their friends to trust me and be able to share with me what they're doing so that I know who my kids are, are, are hanging around and where they come from and the things that are instilled in them. And it's really funny, Jason, because now, um, well, throughout the years that they have been the age to have friends around and have big social lives, um, I, I mentioned a little while ago that my kids don't, they don't party. They're high schoolers, but they don't party. Um, my kids also don't typically like to spend the night away from home. (laughs) Um, Usually it's the opposite. And I'm the mom that all of the kids come to my house. Mm -hmm. And um, I look at that as a blessing because I know where they're at. I know what they're doing. Um, They're not out riding around in cars and sneaking around and hiding things from me. Again, they tell me everything sometimes to a fault where I'm like, oh, didn't want to know that one. But <laughs> thank you for telling me. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, especially at the ages that they're at now, right. um, because this is when life really gets hard yeah, um, sure. when they're trying to to morph into the individuals that they're meant to be exactly. and coming up with their own identity apart from me. Yes, um, yes very much so. Very much so. I mean, it, I think is I think when it comes to to that dynamic, and again, I don't have kids, but I don't mm-hmm. think that you know, uh, I don't think the relationships are really, really, really matter to be a, to be quite honest. Like, if if I am an employer, employee, um, man, wife, son, daughter, whatever, whatever the relationship is, friend, friend. Like, mm-hmm. if if I want to influence someone in some way, shape, or form, then I have to put myself in a position to do that. So if you're a parent and you feel like your best way to influence your children to be productive members of the world is what you're doing, then, and it's working, I mean, based on results, then you're doing the right thing, right? It doesn't really matter what someone else says or does or thinks. It just matters is, is the result producing, um, you know, something that's favorable for both you and them, right? And, and, and their community at large, right? Yeah. It's funny what you just said too. You just, um, it got my wheels turning. And so kind of a little off the subject of kids, um, what you just said, as far as what other people think or how they respond or how they judge your life really is irrelevant. Um, we are the only ones that are living our life. And, you know, that was a really hard lesson for me to learn. Um, I've always been a people pleaser. And I think a lot of that goes back to always wanting my dad to be proud of me. And, um, I, I learned that early on and, um, in my adult life that did not positively serve me. Um, there were certain times throughout my adult life that you would ask me, how do I like my eggs? And I would probably look at you and say, I don't know. And I would look to whoever I was with and what they were doing was what I was going to do because of fear of judgment. Um, I'm so thankful that I have been able to move past that. 
And actually my disability um, is a lot of what played uh, that played the, the, the big role of me changing that in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, when I became paralyzed, I was very different from the majority of the people in the world. Um, the disability community, uh, specifically full-time wheelchair users, are a very, very small um, percentage of the whole general population. And um, depending on where you live, and I've come in, I've encountered this in my travels, I may be the only younger adult that's in a wheelchair. And there's a lot of adversity. And so I had to learn over the course of, of years after being paralyzed I had to learn to have kind of a a thicker skin, but do it with grace. (laughs) And um, so not be rude to anybody, um, but be open to knowing that sometimes when people ask certain questions or place certain judgments or assumptions on me and my life, because I am a full-time wheelchair user, that it's not necessarily to be mean or to be a negative thing, right? Sometimes it's really that they're just not educated on somebody who's a full-time wheelchair user's life yes. and that there is life. Like we don't just sit home. The majority of us <laughs> do not just sit home um, and, and hang out in our wheelchairs. Like we have normal lives. Yes. Um, it might not be normal according to society because obviously we have to do things differently. Um, but the wheelchair is just a vehicle. It's my wings. It's how I move from point A to point B, but it does not define who I am. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 it actually benefited me. So when I tell people how I got paralyzed, usually their first response is, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I usually smile and I'm like, don't be sorry. Um, this improved my life in so many ways. But the reason that it improved my life was because I chose for it to improve my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, like, um, you know, I'm smiling as you're as you're talking through this. You know, we off mic we talked a little bit about uh, your experience, and I told you a little bit about my grandfather and my father. So I have a little bit of a, you know, sort of a front row seat to 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 what that's like. You know, to a certain uh-huh. degree. So I'm yeah. I'm curious. I've got like a billion questions I'm going to ask you about that because my dad has has his take on it and. Uh, and I, I'm really interested in that. But um, one of the things that you were talking about uh, briefly there was educating people when they say something that they don't know or intend to be, you know, sort of mm-hmm. out of out of line, right, or out of bounds. And mm-hmm. I feel like um, this at this moment in 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 this country right now, there's a lot of this happening across the board. You know, pick you know pick your pick your topic. But um, there's a great yeah. book, um, may, I don't know if you've read it or not, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And he talks about... Ooh, no, I the, haven't, but uh, I'd like to. Oh, you'll definitely <laughs> have to check it out, yeah. But he talks about the difference between intent and impact, right? And so what you said right there was a very mature way of looking and a very sort of rational, reasoned way of looking at uh, someone saying something to you that maybe they don't know um, you know, exactly mm-hmm. how to, how to put, right? Like, so you're giving yeah. them, like you said, you're giving them grace. You're saying, well, listen, everybody today, everybody gets offended by everything. <laughs> exactly. And, and I see that. So I have chosen not to be that person. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and, and 
uh, kudos to you, right? Like, so you just, you just hit my punchline, right? Like, so being offended is a choice, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Being offended is a, is a choice. And the question is, what does it benefit you, right? Nothing, right? You, yeah, you're, nothing. You're just, it makes you're a victim. you feel bad. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. But like the, the concept is like intent versus impact, right? So if someone says something to you and you're granting them grace, uh, because you don't know what their intent was. You can never know another person's mind without asking questions, right? Yeah. Um, if someone says something and, and you find it just offensive, you know, you're you're basing <laughs> your opinion on impact, the impact that it had on you, but not the way it was intended. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of those things that's missing uh, from from the conversation today. In any, in any aspect, it's like, okay, well, uh, before I respond like a jackass, like, what did you actually mean by that? <laughs> you know? Like, right. Well, and what was their personal life experience? That's because right. we're all operating on just that, on that's our right. life experiences. Yeah. And so having grace for each other in knowing that your experience is different than my experience, like to me, that's super, super beautiful. Like that's beautiful. It's beautiful to be able to hold space for each other and share our different perspectives from our life experience and find a common ground because each one of us has something that we can relate to each other about. Sure. You know, like how much, how much less confusing would the, would the world be right now, (laughs) especially in our country with everything going on. If we just take the time to actively listen, Mm -hmm. not just hear the other person, but really listen to them. Yes, exactly. I mean, it it, can shape our whole viewpoint on where they're coming from. Right. Rather than assuming the worst, right? Let's give the benefit of the doubt and then find out if the intent was actually the way we perceived it to be, right? Before we fly off the handle and, you know, raise the lynch mob (laughs) and go after somebody, right? It's it's absolutely nuts, man. But uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, you mentioned... Uh, you mentioned your accident, and obviously, um, that's one of the things that that we're going to get into here in a moment. And I know that you've told the story, you know, probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in, <laughs> in your work. But um, let's collect that story. Let's hear a little bit about how it happened. Obviously, um, you're very young. You have three kids, so you probably started having the kids thing a little early, a little y- little young. There. I did. I was a teen mom. Yeah, you're a teen um, mom. So I, Were you on the yeah, show? I actually. <laughs> No, I wasn't. The they didn't have that back yeah, then. But that I was before your my time. My story would have been amazing. Right, right. 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 I'm a has-been. <laughs> um, so I'm back in the TRL generation. Yeah, TRL, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. You're right there with um, me. Yes, yes. So I, um, yeah, the my my accident happened. Um, it was, I was paralyzed because of domestic violence. Um, but it wasn't physical domestic violence until after I was paralyzed because I remained in that relationship. Um, and so I'll get into that as I share my story. So let's but, talk about that real quick before you, before you jump on that, I want to hit you with a, just a quick angle. So, all right, I'm getting started, uh, in a relationship as a teenager, even a late teen or an early 20 something. I mean, your, your brain isn't fully formed. Your ability to make yeah. decisions isn't really there yet. Unless you've had like, um, you know, um, some extreme uh, situations where you've actually been challenged to grow up a little bit early, you're, you're really not there yet. So let's talk a little about how you got into the relationship that you got into, and then let's segue that into some of your experiences. So it actually goes back to um, my first serious relationship, which was my oldest daughter's um, father, um, who was not who I was in the accident with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, it was um, right like my senior year of high school. So I was that girl that stayed totally single, wanted nothing to do with any kind of relationship necessarily. Um, and I, I got into my first serious relationship and everything that you just said about that age, that time period, um, it, it was so correct. Our emotional intelligence has not been strengthened yet. And so our responses, I mean, everything, our, our whole view of the world has not fully developed. We haven't really lived life. Um, and um, that was a very immature relationship as well um, that we kind of jumped into. And um, he was a year older than me. So he went into the Navy my senior year, which is when we when we met. And um, we moved very quickly into this, like, we're going to play house. And um, that was that was the first thing that went wrong. But that relationship kind of set me up for a cycle of a bunch of toxic relationships. And what's funny about that is I was actually probably just as much the toxic one as the other partner was. Um, but again, my emotional intelligence neither one of ours were mature. Right. Um, and so um, I had a series after my oldest daughter. And um, so I, I had my oldest daughter when I was 18. I turned 19 right after. Um, so I was very young. I was already a mom. And I was working at the hospital as a nurse's aide um, with the hopes of, of obtaining my LPN. Um, I was very into nursing. And um, I, I one day decided that I wanted to, um, I, I had to be in a relationship. Um, I, I really don't have a lot of explanation. That's actually something that I still actively work through um, in therapy is um, what caused me to desire having. So I found my identity very early on in, in, in my teenage years and my early adulthood. Um, I found my identity by whoever I was dating. Um, and it's actually a very common thing with young girls. Um, I'm realizing more and more in my, in my profession. Um, so I, um, met my ex-boyfriend that I was in the accident with actually through, um, my stepsister and his brother were dating. And so that's initially how we met. Um, and he is very, very charismatic, very intelligent, um, he just has a force about him um, that I was just very attracted to. And, um, but we were very volatile and um, it was not all him and it wasn't all me. It was definitely both of us. Um, the night of the accident um, was a, a pretty regular <laughs> occurrence where we would get into fights over really ridiculous stuff. Um, and, uh, it, very immature stuff. Um, there was a lot of, of jealousy. Um, there was some controlling tendencies that I, I now in hindsight recognize, but at that point in time in my life, I, in my emotional immaturity saw those things as he doesn't want anybody else to have me. And so I would stay. Um, so it's kind of that classic textbook thing that I, viewed the jealousy as a positive thing. Um, and I, I viewed the control as a positive thing. Um, but the night the accident happened, I had planned. Um, so I think from being raised by a single father, um, the majority of my friends have always been male. Um, and that was the case even then. And so that heightened the jealousy and the insecurity I think that he had. 
um, I actually, one of my roommates at the time was a male and, um, he kind of always had a problem with that. <laughs> and, um, anyway, I was supposed to go to a concert that night. He picked me up from work. Um, uh, went back to his mom's house, got into a huge argument over said concert. I decided as we're screaming and yelling at each other in his mother's driveway, um, that I was going to walk home. Um, I believe in his frustration and, and his inability to control his anger in that moment, um, he picked me up and put me in the car. And at that point, I didn't fight back. Um, I do remember us screaming and yelling at each other as he was driving. Um, we actually were only about two and a half, maybe three blocks at the most away from where I lived, which was why I was going to walk home. Um, so it was a very, it, the, the accident happened very close to where we were and where we were headed. Um, almost directly in the middle. <laughs> and um, he was driving again out of anger. And um, I had experienced that with him one other time prior to that, where he was very angry. We were fighting. He was driving erratically and it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and um, this night was not any, any much the same. Um, he was doing 75 and a 35. Um, we're screaming and yelling back and forth at each other. He um, lost control of the car and overcorrected. And the car flipped six times. And I was we were both ejected from the vehicle. Um, I was ejected from the passenger side window. My body hit a tree, which is what broke my vertebrae and caused my paralysis. Um, and I was totally unconscious. Um, they initially, um, he, he was able to walk away. He, he had an injury to his clavicle. Um, they took him to a totally different hospital than me because obviously I had to make sure that there were, he wasn't under the influence of anything, which he wasn't, except for anger. Mm -hmm. um, and um, initially they told, they, they life flighted me to the hospital, to the trauma center um, here in Charlotte. And they notified um, my, my family Initially, they, they told my family that I had 48 hours to live and that it would be a miracle if I lived past that. Um, the initial brain scans didn't show a lot of brain activity. Um, and this is where the power of prayer comes in. <laughs> and I am a firm believer in the power of prayer. If you know anything medically or scientifically um, about your brain, when you, lose, um, when you lose brain activity, you typically don't get that back. Um, so the, out, the, the, the outlook for me was very, very grim. Um, after I lived past 48 hours, um, I stayed in a coma for about two and a half months. Um, when I initially came out of a coma, I came out fighting and I had my, I had my mind. Um, I was not in a vegetative state, which is what they thought could have been the outcome. Um, when that happened, and then when I say I came out fighting, Jason, I really came out fighting. Um, I was pulling my respirator tubes out and my IVs, and I had um, I had a central line that went into my body that, that fed me. I, I ripped everything out. So they had to medically induce me back into a coma. Um, and then slowly they let me out and um, acclimated me to what was going on. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of that was shock. Um, I remember very, very early on, um, once I was awake and aware of my situation and what was happening, 
um, just the absolute devastation that I felt. Um, and I, I very quickly went into a victim mentality. Um, why did this happen to me? You know, there were times where I was angry at God. Um, what did I do to deserve this? And I think that that was heightened because of the fact that it was something that could have been avoided. Um, and I, I held on to that for a while, actually. Um, but I did remain in the in the relationship. It wasn't until after I was paralyzed um, that I finally left him. And that was because he did become physically abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I can mm-hmm. rationalize it all day, um, but it was not okay. Right. Um, but I do, in, in knowing what I know now, especially in with psychology, um, I believe that his anger towards me physically was his guilt manifesting. Um, he had to watch me struggle because we did very early on after I got out of the hospital, we moved in together. And so he became my caretaker as well as the provider. And um, again, we were still very young and immature. And that was a lot to take on. Um, you were 21 at this time? I was 21. 21 yep. years old, yeah. Yep. Um, again, in stating all of those things, um, it still was not okay. Right. Of course not. Um, and I can't, I can't say that enough. <laughs> it still was not okay. There were healthier ways to deal with it. So, so walk me through this, this part here where you are... Uh, okay, so you're thrown from the car. I'm assuming that you are knocked unconscious, as you said. Yes. You don't have yes. any clue what's going on. You're in a coma. Uh, you wake mm-hmm. up fighting, as you said. Then they induce you uh, back into a coma. Mm-hmm. I mean, at what point did you realize the severity of your injuries? Um, it was after I started com- to come out of the medically induced coma. Um, and, and usually... It would be at night when I would be by myself in my hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a feeding tube um, and the, the formula that they, were, that they were giving me for nourishment because I also had a tracheotomy, so I couldn't eat regular food and I couldn't drink. Right. Um, it, it made me sick. It, it caused me to develop something that's called an ileus. Mm-hmm. And so it would cause me to vomit. And a lot of times that would happen in the middle of the night and there was nothing that I could do to get anybody to help me. So um, I was still, um, my movement and my, on my right side, so I also had a traumatic brain injury um, that made it very, very hard to use the right side of my body. Um, initially, which was just my arms, because obviously both of my legs were paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't at that time, I couldn't even feel my legs. Right. Um, so um, I remember one specific incident that happened where, where that happened in the middle of the night, and I'm laying on my back and I throw up everywhere. Um, but I can't roll myself over and I can't clean myself up. And I couldn't even reach to grab the call bell to get a nurse to come in and help me. It was during their rounds that they found me. Um, and I just remember laying there and crying and going, Oh my gosh, like this is my new reality. Um, there's also something to be said about when, when somebody is, um, newly paralyzed with a spinal cord injury, a lot of times unintentionally, 
um, the doctors and physical therapists and occupational therapists, they're constantly telling you all of the things that you won't be able to do. And I held on to all of the things that they told me I wasn't going to be able to do with dear life, rather than being able to shift my percep my perspective and think of all of the other things that I would be able to do, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, because it, it was constantly being pounded into my head. Right. And um, at that point in time, in, in my healing, um, it was so early on that I refused to accept that I was going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. And um, inadvertently, that actually hindered me for some years. Um, I concentrated on trying to get my old life back. And so when somebody has a traumatic injury like mine, specifically a spinal cord injury, Statistically speaking, most of them, most of spinal cord injury survivors hold on to the life that they know, and that was the life that no longer exists, right? Because now we have a new normal that we have to find. Right. Um, it, it literally turns everything upside down. It shifts everything in your world. And um, I had... Um, I had my mind made up very early on that I was not going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. Like by any means necessary, I was going to figure out how to live life. Little did I know then that my wheelchair was going to become my wings so that I could do that, so that I could find my new normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I was not open to that at all in the beginning, though, even to a fault where when I first got out of the hospital initially, Jason, I didn't use a wheelchair, um, which actually I think benefited me long term. It's why I'm as strong as I am and able to move my body around obstacles and Spartan races is because my whole world became an obstacle course. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I learned how to get on my hands and knees and crawl um, I learned how to scoop myself around. I even went as far as learning how to vacuum an entire room while sitting on the floor. <laughs> um, I was that stubborn. Right. Um, and, and I, I, because of the negative stigma that is attached to a wheelchair, I shunned the wheelchair and like, that is not going to be my life. And so if I start learning how to move around and make this my new normal, then maybe one day I'll walk again. Like that was my rationalization, which I now know was very irrational. Sure. <laughs> um, but very early on, I was, I was determined. Um, it, it was really weird because I had this, my intuition has always been very, very strong. Even when I was a child, my intuition was very strong. Um, and I always had an intuition that, um, even in the beginning, even in the midst of the turmoil, the depression, the suicidal ideation and, and, and the suicidal thoughts that I was feeling in those moments, I, I still always had a gut feeling that there was purpose behind this happening to me. I just didn't know what it was. Right. And um, that actually is what led me to to where I am today 
and even all of the experiences that have come before today, um, learning to find my voice, learning to advocate for myself, learning to shift my perception of my reality and use it to empower me as well as empower other people. Um, I learned very early on that sharing my story did just that. It empowered people to go, wow, tomorrow when I wake up and I don't want to get out of bed, I'm going to think of you and I'm going to get up and I'm going to go work out. And those things, what they didn't, what those people didn't realize was that me learning that I was impacting their lives just by simply sharing what happened to me and keeping myself alive um, actually is what helped me heal psychologically right. um, and emotionally is mm. that I saw that there was purpose behind this, even if it was only touching one perfect person's life. Sure. It still made an impact. Yes. So here we are. Um, roughly what, 19 years on and yeah, yeah. 19 years post injury. Right. And so we're talking about purpose and, you know, I think that it would be valuable for you to talk about maybe the timeline on you arriving at the idea that your life has purpose after like losing the usage of your legs, for example. Right. So Mm-hmm. We all, we all, we all have some sort of cross to bear. Like um, some of them are visible, oh, yeah. like in the case of, you know, a spinal injury, I see you in a wheelchair. I see part of the cross mm-hmm. that you're bearing, right? Um, someone mm-hmm. else is dealing with something psychologically. We don't see that. And so there's really no indication other than maybe how they're behaving or speaking in the moment. Um, but we all mm-hmm. have some sort of cross to bear and we have to figure out what makes this life uh, worth continuing to live on so many days, right? So um, it's like yeah. the Buddhists say, right? Like all life is suffering in some way, shape or form. So it's yeah. like choose your suffering or name your suffering and then just kind of figure out how to best, you know, how to suffer well or how to struggle well through your life. Now right? you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> right. So talk to me um, about that process because I'm guessing it took a little while, like I'm, I'm guessing you didn't oh, wake up yeah. two days later and you're like, oh, well, you know, this, this is good. You know, this is, <laughs> you know, this, there's going to be some yeah. purpose in this thing, right? No, no, it was many years down the road. Um, the, the first thing um, that, and, and you'll hear me say um, throughout this conversation, there have been multiple times where certain events or people, literally their presence saved my life um, because I also, so you were just talking about the the things that we bear, right? The crosses that we bear. Um, I, yes, my my physical disability um, is very pronounced. I mean, you you meet me initially and you're like, okay, there's a story there. Um, (laughs) But what people don't see is the PTSD. And I I have um, complex PTSD um, as well as a high anxiety disorder. And... um, those things were absolutely, um, I could say some of it may have been genetic um, because I have some depression and stuff in my family, um, but they were, the, they were absolutely um, heightened and more pronounced after all of this happened to me. Um, and so, um, yes, it was a, it was a, 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 it's been a, a long road, <laughs> a beautiful road, but a long road. Um, the first thing that actually saved my life um, was finding out that I was pregnant with my daughter, Kalia. 
um, who is um, my daughter, who is now actually going to be 18 this year. She's graduating high school in like six weeks. Um, and I'm, I'm people, on the struggle people bus in wheelchairs with that. can get pregnant. What are you talking about? Yes. Yes. We have children <laughs> and we are parents. So that's actually one of the most common. Get that question a lot. I bet. Don't you? Yeah, yeah. That, that is one of the most commonly asked questions. What's funny with my story is initially I was told that I would never be able to conceive another child, right. which is how I got her. Mm. <laughs> um, but when I found that I was pregnant, it happened to be on the year anniversary of the accident. So it was very early on in my healing. Um, and it, it was, I'll never forget when I heard her heartbeat for the first time and like, okay, this is, this is real life. Like I'm really having a baby and I'm, I'm very newly paralyzed. <laughs> um, it was, it was a very scary time, but it also gave me a lot of hope. And it's funny. So my three daughters, their middle names are faith, hope, and grace in that order. And, um, I can look back at the times in my life when I had them, when they came into this world, my oldest daughter, when she came into this world, I needed faith. When my middle daughter came into this world, I needed hope. And when my youngest daughter came into this world, I needed to learn grace. And um, I didn't even necessarily plan it that way. But when I look back, I'm like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> that really was exactly like they their, their middle names speak so much about my life at those times. Um throughout my journey. Um, but when I found out I was pregnant um, with Kalia, and when I first heard her heartbeat for the very first time on an ultrasound, um, I realized that I yet again um, was being blessed with this innocent soul that I was going to have to lead and try to make um, the best out of our lives possible. And so her life absolutely saved my life because it gave me something outside of myself. Even though I already had my oldest daughter, I had a lot of support with her. Um, I couldn't initially, when I came, got out of the hospital, obviously I could not have custody of her. Um, I was still learning how to take care of myself. And um, I, I thank God for her, not only my family, um, but also her dad's family who really stepped in and um, helped with her. Uh, just they are just beautiful people that I will always be indebted for um, to to shelter her, so to speak, from my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, because then, like I said, phys not only physically was I not capable of taking care of myself, but even emotionally and psychologically, I was not in a good place. Right. Um, and I'm thankful that she was sheltered from that. Um, she was also very young. She was two and a half. So. Mm -hmm. She doesn't remember a lot of that. Um, but with Kalia, I didn't necessarily have that because she was inside of my body, right? Like she's in the womb, I'm carrying her. And so I had to be good to myself. I had to keep myself alive for this new life that we had created. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that I started to finally accept that I was going to be a paraplegic. I was going to utilize a wheelchair to get from point A to point B um, for the rest of my life. Um, I accepted that and really started to embrace other people with disabilities and, and the disability community at whole. Um, pr 
probably in 2009, which was a good seven years after um, I was paralyzed. And it also was when MySpace, so this is social media, um, it just shows my age, um, MySpace was a thing. And um, MySpace is actually what gave me an outlet to the bigger world around me. So where I live, um, and I, I live in a suburb of Charlotte, um, I never really came in contact with other people that were young and that were paralyzed. And um, it, it deeply affected me because I felt like I was alone. Um, it wasn't until social media became a thing um, through MySpace um, that I started connecting and finding other people who had been paralyzed a little bit longer than I had and had found their new normal and were thriving and living these amazing lives and doing things that I never was told I would be able to do as a wheelchair user. And so it inspired me and it gave me hope um, that I could absolutely live out what my intuition was telling me and find purpose within this. And so I started on MySpace. Um, I, I, I only had um, an, a computer and an internet connection. <laughs> so I was on an extremely limited income. I didn't drive. Um, I didn't even own a vehicle, much less know how to drive with hand controls at that point in time. Um, my kids were very young. My youngest daughter was probably only a year old um, at that time, but I had all three girls and um, my computer and my internet connection. And I learned, um, I taught myself to make extra money, how to code, how to do HTML coding. <laughs> and I started making extra money by building MySpace pages for people. Um, and they looked very extremely professional. And um, so this is the start of my um, entre being an entrepreneur. Um, this is what gave me the love of being an entrepreneur. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I can find ways to make money and not actually work for somebody else. Like, this is amazing. I mean, I can do it right here from home. <laughs> and um, way before COVID and, and everybody working from home now. Um, and I started doing that. But in doing that, I was also connecting with other wheelchair users, again, that were um, living vivacious lives. And um, I inadvertently came across um, a wheelchair manufacturing company called Colors Wheelchair. Um, and um, they make really cool rims and like these like blinged out wheelchairs. And I was like, oh my gosh, like how cool would it be to have like a wheelchair that looks totally different from every other wheelchair that kind of sets me apart and, and lets me be my own individual. And so I reached out to them and um, they responded back and we set up a phone conversation and they're like, oh my gosh, I told them like my vision as far as wanting to be an advocate to help other people who were in the same situation that I once was when I initially got paralyzed. Um, and they're like, you are exactly what we're looking for. And then they also said, have you ever heard of Miss Wheelchair America? And I was like, what? <laughs> Miss America? Like, yeah, I know what Miss America. And they're like, no, Miss Wheelchair America. Like, there's a whole other entity that's just for wheelchair users. And I kind of laughed it off. And I was like, um, like, I'm not a pageant kind of girl. Like, I have tattoos at that point in time. I smoke cigarettes. Like, I was not, <laughs> I was not a pageant girl. And um, I've always been very, very interested and drawn to like X games. And so stuff that sports that were very outside of the box. 
um, like surfing and skateboarding, like those were the things that I enjoyed. Um, and, um, I am like, you know, the, this, this isn't, no, that's not for me. And the guy that I was talking to, who actually is one of my lifelong friends now, um, he had been in a chair, oh God, I think now he's been in a chair like 30 plus years. Um, and, uh, he's like, no, he's like, the reason that I'm telling you about this program, Miss Wilshire America is because it's not a beauty pageant. It's based on advocacy and you're a very, very good speaker and you build rapport with people very quickly. He's like, I feel like I've known you my whole life and this is my first time talking to you. <laughs> and so I was like, hmm. So in my own time, I started researching Miss Wheelchair America and I found out that we had um, a program here in North Carolina. So there was a Miss Wheelchair North Carolina program. Um, and that if the contestant, if you won that um, title, you got to go on to nationals, which was competing for Miss Wheelchair America. So. I got in touch with the coordinator, fell in absolute love with her. I loved everything that was about Miss Wheelchair America. I loved what they stood for. Um, I loved the thought of being able to be the voice for people who haven't found their voice yet. And so I applied and I competed and subsequently won. <laughs> and then very quickly after that, it was only like a, a few, maybe four months after I won the state title, I was sent off to Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, so every year, Miss Wheelchair America, the national pageant is held in a different city every year. Um, and that year happened to be South Dakota. Um, and I have to say, I fell in love with South Dakota. It's now one of my favorite states in the entire country. It's one of the most beautiful states I've ever been to. Um, so I, I fly out there and I actually go by myself. So everybody else has a companion, <laughs> whether it's a, a husband, a boyfriend, um, a mom, a sister, um, a, a caretaker, a nurse, somebody had some, everybody has somebody but Erica. And so I, I put that, that gift that I have of building rapport with people to work really, really quickly because I realized, oh my God, like I don't know anybody. <laughs> and um, luckily social media was a thing already. And I already knew some of the girls from social media and their families very quickly um, adopted me and I was never alone. Um, but I have to tell you, I never, after meeting all of the other girls from the other states, the other contestants, I did not think that I was ever going to even make it into the top five. <laughs> um, I was competing against some, some girls who were born with different disabilities, um, that one, one of them in particular couldn't verbally speak. She used a smart board, a computer to talk for her. But then I ended up finding out that she also held a master's degree and was working on her PhD in social work. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I haven't done anything special. <laughs> um, and so I, I realized early on that for me being there wasn't about winning a crown. It was more about forming bonds with other people, other women who understood my life and that got it. And I could talk to them about anything, they understood it. And so it was more the camaraderie. Um, but fast forward through the week, um, cause the pageant is a whole week long. Um, it comes down to the crowning ceremony and I'm called into the top five and I totally start crying and did the whole pageant face because I made it into the top five. <laughs> well, then <laughs> they start, they, we, they do the, the top five comp competition and they start to announce the winners and they start first with the fourth runner up and then it wasn't me. And then it was the second runner up and it still wasn't me. And then 
they get to just two people and it's me and one other girl. And I'm like, there's no way that I'm, I'm going to be the first runner up. And, and I was okay with that. I was like, yay, like I won. I'm the first runner up. Right. And then they called the first runner up and it wasn't me. <laughs> and I realized that I had just accomplished something huge yeah. and that my whole life, I was going to have to find an, another new normal because my life um, kicked into very high gear very quickly after I won that title. Mm-hmm. Um, my year as Miss Wheelchair America, um, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it included a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking engagements, um, a lot of amazing opportunities when it came to adaptive sports and really, really, really forming bonds um, and relationships with a lot of very key, um, very recognized people within the disability community. So believe it or not, um, there is a, um, it's kind of like celebrities in the disability community. And they are people that have done really good things um, and are paving the way for accessibility in every area of life, mm-hmm. from Hollywood to sports to regular um, accessibility as far as being able to get into places, um, being a wheelchair user. And so accessibility is a very broad term. Um, But I started connecting with these amazing individuals and forming friendships with them. And it was like opportunity after opportunity after opportunity kept presenting themselves. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I started to build a career as a motivator. And um, Miss Wheelchair America gave me the perfect Um, platform to be able to share my story to even bigger communities and more people. Um, And I was able to also tweak it to where I'm no longer sharing a sad story about how my life was flipped, turned upside down and changed dramatically. I was now using my story and sharing the accomplishments that I had made because of it. And so it was even more empowering and even more impactful for the people that heard me speak. And um, that is how I became a recognized disability figure um, advocate. And um, I have actually already had one full feature length documentary made about me. Um, And it was actually my story along with four other girls' stories and our journeys to Miss Wheelchair America. Um, I just happened to be the one that won. And so um, the last part of the film is solely about me. Um, that they, they now show that to newly injured women to give them hope um, within rehab facilities. Um, so it's, it's, it's still changing lives to the same, even though it was 10 years ago. No, wait, mm. 11 years ago, because it's 2021. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> and, and, what is, and what is the name of the documentary, if you don't mind me asking? It is called Defining Beauty. Okay, Defining Beauty. Is it all women or yes. is it a mixture? It is all women. All ladies. So it is geared to women, yes, with disabilities. Um, with that being said, um, throughout the time period, throughout the course of all of these years, um, I came into full acceptance of my physical disability. Um, but what was never addressed was the emotional and psychological part. Um, never was I offered any kind of counseling, any kind of therapy, nor was I ever diagnosed with anything 
the doctors just gave me antidepressants. And if I was experiencing anxiety, they would just give me medicine for that. And so it came to a point in my life well after Miss Wheelchair America that I found myself on a bunch of different medications. Um, and they actually became a bad thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and as time went on, the, the stuff, the life stuff, the traumas, that I had never healed from psychologically and emotionally started popping their ugly heads up. And I found myself over the course of all of these years, up until probably about four years, no, three years ago now, um, in a constant cycle of toxic relationships. Um, I still had that mind frame that the only way that I had worth was if I had a partner, even if that partner was not good for my well-being. Yes. And this... I would jump into bad relationships. <laughs> I always wanted to fix people. Yes. Yes. This is uh <laughs> this is um this is interesting right here. And um before we dive down that rabbit hole um and you know obviously congratulations on the Miss Wheelchair America like aside from winning the crown, right? Once you win a pageant, you earn the right to do the royal hand wave, right? Where you just cup your hand and rotate it side <laughs> I to do. side. It's funny that <laughs> you you're smile saying that. And cup so your I hand. actually, one of the amazing opportunities that I had is there was a whole bunch. We could, we could spend probably 30 minutes just talking about the opportunities I had throughout that year. But one of them um, was I got to be in the Tournament of the Roses Parade in Pasadena oh, on fantastic. New Year's Day. And that gave me the perfect opportunity to do the pageant girl wave and yes i did do it as a joke <laughs> um, awesome. i didn't do it the whole time but yes i did get to finally do that which felt kind of nice yes yes but rewinding back to this point okay so um i think we originally jumped off on the purpose tangent and you told me about your uh last daughter so you basically mm-hmm. you're, you're giving birth and so you have this being that's now dependent upon you and on some level i'm sure that you want to be there for that child and then seven years Mm -hmm. on, nine years on, you're um, doing the pageant thing, you're speaking to people. I was away from home a lot. Right, away from home a lot, right? And Mm -hmm. I would imagine through that time period where where these things are happening, it seems like relatively quickly there's not a lot of time to process what you're actually doing, but you're no. You're surrounded by people who are telling you, hey, you know what, you're awesome, you can do this, Um, we want to see you do this, we want to see you do that, but you still really don't have... Uh, like a like yeah. a like that time with yourself to actually process mm-hmm. who you want to be and why you want to be it. You know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. and now you're talking about this this place where you're coming to after that, where okay, now it's uh, maybe I'm depressed and I need something for that or yeah. blah blah blah. I'm not in the spotlight anymore. All of the attention is not on me anymore. Right. And so, do mm. you think that might have exacerbated the way you were feeling about yourself, or did you use that as an opportunity to reflect and just wasn't able to make progress? What did that look like for you? No, it it absolutely. I had learned. Um, to define myself by all of these amazing or with all of these amazing opportunities and this title that I held. Mm -hmm. But when I was home in my personal life, I was a mess. Um, I was in horrible relationships. I was hanging around all the wrong people. Um, I um, was depressed. There were lots of times that I was suicidal. Um, there were times where I was struggling, um, and not coping in healthy ways. Um, and 
I, I realized actually that, which is why I don't like to identify when people ask me like, what should I say when I'm announcing you? I'm like, well, don't say Miss Wilshire America because that doesn't define who I am. Um, I actually used that title as a mask. And this is where I think that the, the pressures of society and social media come into play. Um, I'm definitely not, um, I use social media as a marketing tool um, but it's not something that I live my life by. And there's a lot of deep rooted reasons why. And part of that is um, because of everything we see on social media, right? Like social media makes everybody's lives look perfect. Very rarely, I think more so now um, than initially when like, especially Facebook came, became a thing. Um, and even back with MySpace days, um, it became on like, who can one up who, right? And like, everybody has like these picture perfect looking lives. Um, but you don't really know what's going on behind the computer. Yeah. And I did that. That was my coping mechanism was to put a mask on and pretend as if I like kind of got this high from pretending when I would get these likes and these shares that my life was great. And so what I projected to the outer world, the public, was not in balance with how my life really was. Right. And that is really what led to the invisible scars that I carry as far as my mental health, that was where that started popping its ugly head up. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I have to deal with this stuff because if not, eventually I'm going to be exposed (laughs) and people are going to realize that my life. And so with, with any kind of mental illness, I also believe that there is a stigma attached to it. There's shame, there's guilt, Um, there's lack of education and knowledge. It's a lot better now than it was even 10 years ago. Um, because of people, not just like me, but organizations and stuff that are starting that conversation, opening that conversation up, um, that it's just as important to be mentally well as it is to be physically well. Um, right. So we, we need all three, we need spiritual, physical, and mental. Um, and they all need to be in sync with each other. Yes. And my life was very unbalanced. Um, and I, I suffered because of it. And um, it wasn't until I had um, an actual nervous breakdown um, that I now call my spiritual awakening because it just makes it sound a lot better. Um, but it wasn't. It was, excuse my language, it was a shit show. Right. And I really honestly... Um, got to a place where I was able to reflect on my life over the course of, I think at that point it was 16 or 17 years of paralysis and started to see how I was the one that was self-sabotage. I was self-sabotaging yes, and I was self-sabotaging because I wasn't dealing with the hard stuff. That's right. I was afraid. Um, I was ashamed. I held guilt Um, all of those unhealthy negative emotions about my life enough to where I wasn't willing to face it. And I didn't have the courage to say I need help until I had that breakdown. And that breakdown was very extreme. Um, it It was so bad that I remember calling my mom and I'm, I'm pulled over on the side of the road. I was driving and pulled over on the side of the road. And I had just had a horrible breakup. Um, 
uh, my life was total chaos. It, it, that was the way I was viewing it anyway. Um, and I couldn't find anything except for my kids to keep alive, to stay alive. And I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I don't want you to panic. But right now my brain is telling me to drive my car in front of a tractor trailer and end my life. But I'm telling you, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I just want to get better. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I think it totally blindsided her um, because I did always wear that mask. And so not to say that I didn't go through the peaks and valleys of life and I would have moments of, of depression and like life is over and whatever, but then I would pull myself out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and whether that was with, with filling voids with people or things, material things or whatever it was, the likes on Facebook, the shares on Facebook, right. um, I would put that mask back on um, and I would be fine. And so I think that possibly, and I'm speaking on behalf of my mom, but I don't really know this is a total assumption that it, it, it scared her enough to where she's like, Oh my gosh, she's really serious. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I finally did get home. I begged my mom, mom, can you just please come stay with me? Like, I just need you next to me. Um, and, and that was really all I needed. I just, I needed my mom to sleep next to me and I needed to know that she was here. Even if I didn't have anything to talk about, I just needed to know she was here. And, um, my mom very actively started reaching out to my doctors and explaining what was going on. And, um, my, my doctor very quickly, once we were able to get in touch with her, um, she's like, you know, she bring her in. Um, I can tell you also there was another contributing factor to this breakdown. Um, and, and that was I had actually inadvertently been overdosed on serotonin. And so I had something that they call serotonin syndrome. That was what was making me suicidal in the moment um, mm -hmm. to the extreme that I was. So how, um, how did you how are you overdosing on serotonin? So um, another doctor at one one of the one of the bad relationships that I decided to jump into to fill a void um, actually was in upstate New York, which is where I graduated high school. Okay. I had went up there um, for my oldest daughter's wedding and reconnected with an old friend from high school um, who actually also lived with PTSD. Now, I'm, I have to make a point to tell you at that time, I didn't have a diagnosis. So I didn't know at that time that I had PTSD. I kind of guessed that I did, but I didn't even know about CPTSD. Mm -hmm. um, my boyfriend at the time, though, had combat PTSD, and his was pretty significant. Um, and um, I decided, well, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to put my house in North Carolina on the market, and I'm going to try to move my entire life here and make this, this partnership, this relationship. And um, I had to change doctors. And while I was up there, um, I started to experience that the PTSD started to show its ugly head. Um, partially because I was up there for the wrong reasons. Right. So right. like I was again, trying to fill a void when that person couldn't fill that void. Right. I had to fill the void myself. Right. Um, but I was, I, I noticed that I was more anxious. I was more depressed up there. And so I found a new doctor and went to the doctor and told them all of these things. 
and they gave me more medicine. And the combination of medicines that they gave me um, in the pharmaceutical book, right, the drug book, they're actually listed as the only way that you give two of the medicines that they had me on, the only way that you give them to a patient um, together at the same time is if the benefits outweigh the risks. Well, with me, the benefits didn't outweigh the risks, but I never spoke up for myself. And I continued to spiral out of control, which is what forced me to come home and that relationship ended very abruptly, very traumatically, um, which I guess is par for the course, right? Yeah. And um, came home. And shortly after that was when I had the actual breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they figured it out was they did a blood test on me to check my serotonin levels. And when they got the test back, my doctor was like, whoa okay, this answers a lot of questions. (laughs) And she also proceeded to ask me, have you ever talked to a therapist? And it was funny, Jason, because when she said that, it was like a breath of fresh air. Like I've been waiting all of these years to say that, like to hear her say that to me. I waited all of these years because I didn't have the strength and courage to say it for myself. Uh And when she said that, I remember like, just like a sigh of relief and like, no, nobody's ever talked to me about that. But yes, I need that. I want to talk to somebody that can help me better than these or in, in partnership with these medications. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I knew that I still needed somewhat of um, the medication to help me after being on an antidepressant for as many years as I had been to that point my body was not naturally going to produce the right amount of serotonin. Um, And I know that from, um, I guess my nursing education. (laughs) Um, So they got me, they got my meds straightened out, got me to where I was only on one very low level dose of an antidepressant that was not a controlled substance. Um, And I started therapy literally the next week. Um, And I, I, (laughs) that was, um, probably the, the third person that saved my life was my therapist. So what type um, of, what type of therapy did you enter into? I mean, I, in listening to your yeah. story, I mean, I can, I can sort of see the, the trajectory of your life evolving because of the fact that mm-hmm. you, you said several times, you know, you're, you're trying to fill a void with a relationship, for example. Yeah. Um, and you know, in, and, you know, standard bum magnet theory, right? Like there is bum, na- bum <laughs> magnet theory. If I take a woman who believes she's less than and I put her in a room full of 100 men and only one of them is a bum, she's going to attract the bum. And Absolutely. so at one point, at what point do you look at yourself and you say, you know, OK, listen, you know, um, this is this is quasi fucked and I need to, you know, take a hard look at me, um, maybe talk yeah. about. Uh, some of the ways I'm feeling about myself with my therapist? Like, was this kind of the direction that you were going at this point? Were you sort of realizing that there was internal work that needed to happen? Yes, I was. um, So the relationship that ended in in New York, um, that was the precursor to my breakdown. um, He was one of my best, best friends. I mean, from the time we were 15 years old, And then we reconnected, you know, what, 20 something years later, and he became my best friend again. And um, it was a whirlwind relationship. Um, 
but I destroyed that relationship because I was unhealthy. So when he would be triggered with his PTSD, it was never directed at me, but because I had had a series of very toxic and somewhat abusive relationships, when he would lose his shit and get angry, I internalized it as if it was me and I wasn't good enough. And I inadvertently destroyed the entire relationship. Um, we are still friends today um, and we hold nothing but good goodness and love for each other. Um, but we're not as close as we were, obviously. Um, it, it has gotten better over the course of time. Um, but I also know that um, he is his own individual and he's actually engaged now. And I couldn't be like any more of his biggest cheerleader um, because he deserves nothing but happiness. But I held on to a lot of guilt mm -hmm. in what I put him through because I was not mentally healthy. So and he was actually the person he had been through EMDR therapy which is what I subsequently got into. So my therapist, that is what she did. That is the kind of therapy that I got into. Okay, so, um, tell, uh, so, so tell everyone at home what EMDR stands for, for those who sure. do not know. If I can remember it totally, because I always <laughs> mess this up. It is I... I'm going to have to look it up because it's hard to say. Eye movement desensitization rationalization. There you go. Close enough. So, <laughs> yes. So that, and I may have for anybody that's listening, I may have totally screwed that up, but it's, it's along those lines. Right. <laughs> so what EMDR does um, is it goes back, it, it has you go back into your past and reface your trauma and it attaches a healthier emotion to the trauma because you're operating off of an irrational, unhealthy emotion, which is how you keep re-traumatizing yourself or being triggered. That's right. And so um, when you were taking a look at yourself and you are facing some of these histories, these old stories, you know, that you are writing in your mind, you know, mm -hmm. what were the ones that, what were maybe the top one or two that came up for you that you really realized that you had to deal with or that were, were, were causing these uh, disruptive patterns in your life? So the first one, um, and it's totally okay to talk about this, so don't hold your breath when I say this. Because <laughs> most people do when I say they're like, ooh, like they might hear that. And I'm no, like, no, okay. let's get into it, girl. Um, Come on. Give me so, the good yeah, stuff. So, so, so the, first, the first thing that, I real, that we recognized and working with my therapist very early on um, was that I was dealing with abandonment and rejection, and it actually stemmed from my mom. Um, now again, I love my mom with like every fiber of my being. I love both of my parents, but they were also on their own individual journeys. Right. And like, I was brought into this world. Um, I, my mom, um, when she left my dad and I, um, and Initially, she lived in the same state as us when they first got divorced. And so I would see her like periodically on the weekends, like I would visit her or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, then she relocated to upstate New York. Um, hence how I ended up graduating in upstate New York, because I moved with my mom when I was a teenager. Um, but when I was younger, and it was just solely me and my dad, um, my mom, again, she was dealing with her own stuff. 
And um, I think that she was also filling voids with relationships, um, which could have been where I learned that um, at no fault of hers. Because again, like when we're in this thing that we call life, we're not always aware in the moment of how this is going to affect long term the people that we love the most. Right. That's right. That's right. Like that's actually one of the beautiful things about life in a way. Um, And so um, but we recognize that my mom moving so far away from me really, really affected me. And it brought me back to a place where I remember the night that I found out that my mom moved to New York. And I remember crying to my dad. And I actually haven't shared this with my dad. I've shared it with my mom, but I haven't shared it with my dad. Um, But I remember crying and looking up at my dad and saying, why am I not good enough? Why did she leave? Because the way that I internalized it at that time, even though she still played a part in my life, I mean, I talked to her all the time. I mean, she, um, I would go visit her during the summers and, you know, breaks from school and, and that kind of stuff. It wasn't as if she was non-existent in my life. Right. Um, but her not being there and leaving at that young age, I think I was maybe eight or nine, I internalized it as she left me. Oh, yeah. Because at that point in time, I couldn't understand or even comprehend adult stuff. And the fact that that relationship between my parents was not positively serving either one of them anymore. And that season was over. Um, And so I found when, when we, when my therapist said, Oh my goodness, I think we're onto something right now. You are operating off of a frequency of abandonment. And so anytime I would get into a relationship and some of it may have happened too with being a military brat and having to leave people and lose people. Sure. Um, I held on to people very, very tightly. And um, when I would be in relationships, I held to them with dear life, which also made a lot of sense of why I allowed the relationship to define who I was. That was where I found my identity mm-hmm. was within a relationship. Um, as we started working through these things, I could actually see the patterns um, throughout my life from my late teen years into early adulthood and even up until the last three years right, right. <laughs> um, where I understood it made all the sense in the world. Like, oh my gosh. But then... I knew I needed to have that conversation with my mom because eventually I was going to have to tell her about therapy. (laughs) Um, And, and I did actually, it hasn't been that long ago that I had that conversation with my mom and I'm like, I need you to know that I hold no blame. I hold no resentment and I hold nothing negative towards you. I have nothing for you, but unconditional love because now that I'm an adult and I have my own kids and I've made my own mistakes as not just a parent, but an adult, I realized that like, there's not a life, there's not a handbook that comes with life. Right. Exactly. Like we're all just kind of figuring it out and doing our best, you know? Yeah. There's two huge lessons in, in that story there. I mean, I think one of course is the trajectory of your life is very, very, uh, obviously explained by your mother's absence. Um, and, Mm -hmm. And, and what I take from that is, you know, I think if we process that, we'd get to the point where it's like, okay, mom wasn't there, but dad was. So dad was kind of like the safety blanket, the kind that he was the one who was there Absolutely. for you. And so you had to find that in other men once your dad yeah. was 
once you were too old for to be daddy's girl anymore, you know? Right. I'm still daddy's girl. Yeah, no, well, of course. You're always going to be he's got, girl. He's got two. He's got two. So I have a little <laughs> sister. So, so I have to be really careful saying that because he loves us both equally in of different course, ways. Of course so. he does. Of course he does. <laughs> so, sis, if you're listening to this, Didn't I'm not mean to imply better. anything, sis. <laughs> Everybody's daddy's girl. I'm the favorite. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, but the other thing too is uh, super crucial. And uh, in one session, I remember doing this exercise where, like you mentioned, oh, you know, my mom, uh, she probably was dealing with her own issues, right? And she wasn't consciously trying to impart these things to me, right? And that's yeah. true. Like we all do the best that we can with the tools that we have. And when we know better, we do better. Um, and I think it, it helps. Uh, in your words, to use uh, the word grace, it helps a lot to have grace for other people when you see them as children, you know, like uh, my parents, they fought like cats and dogs, and I had a lot of animosity toward them. But I realized Mm -hmm. that when they came together, they didn't have the tools, you know, they both came from abusive households. And so when I saw them as little children, uh, through this one little session that I did, I was able to see my young father being a kid or my young mother being a little girl. Mm being abused and then you project that youth into their adult bodies and they're still the same people. They're just little kids yeah. in big we people bodies. We all have an inner child. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so if you can learn to see people that you're having that issue with as the child that they were, then I think it's mm-hmm. very easy to have empathy and allow for a little bit of grace. Yeah. There's actually an exercise that I use now in my coaching practice um, to help when I'm helping somebody develop their empathy. Um, That's very, very similar to that. And that is when you are getting negative energy from somebody. So you like, you guys just aren't vibing and it's really, really hard to find the good in that person is to visualize them as somebody who you hold near and dear. So a lot of times if it's um, somebody who's a parent, picture them as your child. Um, if it's somebody that doesn't have kids, picture that person as the closest person to you. So um, one of the people that I've used, and because I use that exercise on myself, um, is I use my brother, Ian. So my brother, who is my dad and my stepmom's child, so he's my half brother, but he's my brother. We don't do the half step stuff. He's my brother. Um, he is totally non-verbally um, autistic. And um, he is, the way that he, I, I wish that we could all see the world the way that he does. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body. And he never, he doesn't have the capacity really to wish ill will on anybody. Yes. And um I could not even fathom. I don't know that I, I have to be really careful the questions I ask when I'm getting updates on my brother, because it would literally crush me um, exponentially if I ever found out that somebody was mean to my brother. Mm-hmm. He's such a pure, innocent soul. And um, so I, a lot of times will visualize my brother and how would I engage with him in this scenario? And that will help me have that empathy, right? And humanize them. That this is somebody's child. This is somebody's father, brother, sister, mother, whatever. This is a loved human. And I have to give them that grace. 100%. And also even knowing something that we said earlier about is society today and 
taking the time to take in consideration that person's life experience. And so maybe that day they're having a really shitty experience and maybe it has absolutely nothing to do with me. And actually 90% of the time, it doesn't have anything to do with us. That's right. Yeah. When somebody is being rude to us, a lot of times it's, it's a reflection of whatever they're dealing with. Yes. There is a great, uh, for those of you guys who want uh, to, to take that advice and, and see it uh, presented, there's a great, um, I think it's a video on YouTube, but it, there is a great presentation by David Foster Wallace called This is Water. <clears throat> and he talks about this, right? Um, we're all like fish in water. We don't understand the environment that we're in. Like a, a fish doesn't mm-hmm. realize that, that water exists. It just is, you know? Right, right. Um, and so yeah. we're all going through our own little unconscious experiences. And he talks about this, you know, the lady at the checkout and how she's causing a problem for him because she's writing a check and this and that and the other thing. And it's, it's a great little um, exploration of that idea that you put forth. So if you guys want to check that out, check out David Foster Wallace, This Is Water. And also realize that life is hard for smart people. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> especially for smart people. David Foster Wallace was a, a very smart guy and, and who ended up taking his own life because he couldn't reconcile mm-hmm. his thoughts with his reality, right? But um, there's two aspects of your life that I really want us to have a chance to get into. And I know I'm taking up your entire night. So I appreciate you indulging You're me. You're fine. I uh, held this whole space <laughs> of this night for you. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm going to take every minute I can. So, yes, um, please do. So there's two, two things. So obviously you're a Spartan racer. Okay. So this I is am. super freaking interesting. And you're also <laughs> a coach or a mindset yes. coach. Um, or a trauma-informed mindset coach, however we want to title that. Yeah, it's all of it together. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about those things. So how did you get involved in the Spartan race world, or how did you get involved in the the training world, whichever one comes first in your timeline? So it was actually the training world first. Okay. Um, So I um, had seen some other adaptive athletes on um, Facebook and YouTube doing CrossFit. And I was like, I want to do that because that's totally outside of the box. And again, I live for the extreme stuff. Um, So I went and rolled my happy butt into a CrossFit box here in Charlotte. And um, the very first box that I came to, I actually was turned away. Um, The guy kind of looked, yeah, he he looked at me and um, (laughs) he goes, well, you know, we'll have to get some some documentation from your doctor. And it was all liability stuff. And right. so I was like, okay, well, thank you for your time. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be back in touch. And I rolled out of there and I'm not going to lie. I was in, in my, the back of my brain and like liability, my ass, like you just probably don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I didn't know. So, what to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. That's why I, I gave him, I gave him grace and smiles and uh, appreciation. Um, and I remembered that there was this really big brand new CrossFit box right directly behind where I live. So I'm like, I didn't go to that one first because it was intimidating. It was really big. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I decided, you know what, it's close to home. Why not? The worst they're going to do is tell me no. That's right. So I roll in and I see this beautiful blonde standing at the desk and she's like in like this workout gear. And I'm like, okay, she must be a coach. So I roll over and she's like, can I help you? And I'm like, I want to do CrossFit. (laughs) And she got this big smile. And she was like, really? She's like, actually, you're talking to the right person. 
And she started telling me a little bit about her education and um, expertise. And she actually specializes in working with people who have other physical ailments, even if it's something um, like a stroke patient who is learning to gain their mobility back. She's like, you know, I think that I think I was her very first wheelchair athlete that was a full-time wheelchair user, mm-hmm. um, but she was in like 110%. So at that moment, I was pumped. When very quickly after we had this conversation, she also mentioned that she had a friend who was also in the Charlotte area um, who was also an adaptive athlete, but she had a mild form of cerebral palsy. So she was a walker. So I call you guys walkers and us wheelers. So just so you know, you're a walker, Jason. Um, and anybody else is listening that can walk. You're I'm walkers. thinking walking dead um, when you say that. I'm a walker. Yes, right? that's what everybody says. And what's funny is I've never seen an episode of The Walking Dead in my life. Oh, man. Um, Too funny. But it is a term that we use in the disability community that you guys are able-bodied, you're walkers. Um, and so um, she tells so me about... <laughs> don't feel offended or oh, called I'm so out. offended it just calling me names yeah. <laughs> um but she starts telling me about this other woman who's also a crossfit coach um that also happens to have cerebral palsy and has this nonprofit organization called project momentum where she actually pays their nonprofit organization pays for other adaptive athletes who might not have the money to go to a gym and train right they pay for the trainer. And I was like, oh, Amy. So Amy is my coach, Amy Holland. And um, I'm like, you are speaking my language, Amy, because I also didn't share this with you. I need to know how much this costs because I promise you, I probably can't afford it. (laughs) And um, that was when I knew I was in luck. And so she got me hooked up with Amanda. Amanda came to the gym and met me. Um, and from that moment on, I started training in CrossFit and, um, it was very slow start because I didn't realize here I'd like pumped myself up. Like I'm a wheelchair user, right? So like my upper body strength should be absolutely ridiculous. It wasn't. (laughs) And, um, I found that out very early on. I could barely do like three pull-ups. Um, my, the lower half of your body becomes even heavier when the muscles don't work. (laughs) Um, so I, I started training regularly. And um, I think at first, initially, I started like two days a week. And then I went to three days a week. Um, and it became a normal part of my life. And what I also found, because remember, I'm also actively in fit therapy at this point. I also found that I felt so much better, not just, well, you know what, I'm going to lie a little bit. I almost lied to you a little bit. Physically, I didn't necessarily feel better. I was really sore and I could barely <laughs> lift my arms above my head. to put Now my hair the to truth myself. comes out. Yeah, there yeah, we go. Right, right. So in my gym, as you're leaving the gym, there's a sign up above the, the door of the box that says smile tomorrow will be worse. And that yeah. is never, I've never heard a truer statement when it comes to CrossFit. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but I love it. Um, and um, I started to realize that my body was really sore, but mentally and emotionally, I felt the best that I had felt in probably 16 years. Imagine that, um, right? Like uh, what did that did for me. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And it helped me continue to actively work through my own shit. Yes. So it motivated me to put the tools that my therapist was giving me. It motivated me to hold myself accountable to use them and to be mindful 
of my thoughts and of the emotions that I was feeling in the midst of a moment. I love that. um, Oh, it was life changing, life changing. Um, and I started to get buff really quick, um, which was also really amazing. I was like, Ooh, I can finally have a beach body. Like I never thought that like a girl in a wheelchair could have a beach body, but it is possible. Um, and I also fell in love with the CrossFit community. I have, um, NASCAR pit crews that actually train with me that train at the same box that I train at, um, who became those guys became my biggest cheerleaders, um, my biggest supporters. Like they're in there high fiving me. Like I'm like ready to cry. Like I'm done. Like I'm on the ski machine and they're like, come on, get it, get it, you know, and just hyping me up. And I would just leave there feeling absolutely amazing. That's awesome. Um, the way that the community also gave back to me in a way that filled my cup up was I started to realize again, how many of those people that I looked up to that are these big CrossFit athletes, like the NASCAR pit team, the pit crews for like nasty sports, you know, nasty racing um, is who I train with. And they started coming to me through social media and private messages and saying, I want you to know that yesterday when I got to the gym, I wasn't feeling it. And I look to my right and I see you over there kicking ass and you motivated me. And so it's that, 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 um, that gratitude that gives back, like it goes two ways, right? Yes. Little did I know, little did they know they were motivating me. I want to be like them. Right. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm coming up short every time I'm in there because I'm not doing things the same way they are. That's right. um, not to say it's any less intense, but it's different. And then I have these big, strong guys that are like, you are the reason I completed my wad yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like that is like the best compliment anybody could ever give me. Mm-hmm. And Amazing. it continued, like, it was like a motivating of each other, right? It's like they, that, that give and take relationship. It was amazing. Yeah. It um, just multiplies I, back and forth, right? Yes. 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 It's that universal law, what you put out comes back, Absolutely. you know? Um, yeah. It was, it was amazing. Um, shortly after that, um, I want to say maybe, uh, maybe a year after that, um, was when I was introduced to Spartan racing. And, um, the way that I fell into that was actually kind of accidentally, um, my team more heart than scars, um, which is also a 501c nonprofit, um, organization as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed, um, so we had the Charlotte, the Charlotte, um, super weekend, um, in April of 2019. Okay. And, um, they needed an adaptive athlete. Like they were going to run the race, but they didn't have a wheelchair athlete or not only a wheelchair athlete, because adaptive athlete is, is a a very broad term. Um, you know, you have amputees, you have people with other disabilities like cerebral palsy, spina bifida. I mean, you name it, that's an adaptive athlete. Um, but they needed an adaptive athlete. And so one of my friends who's also a former Miss Wheelchair North Carolina. She's actually the state, the current state coordinator. Um, she was one of my mentees. 
And um, so I mentored her after she was initially paralyzed, just how we became friends. And um, she had been a Spartan and Tough Mudder athlete with more heart than scars. And I had seen her videos and I had seen the pictures after her race. And of course, I'm like, yay, go Shannon. Like, I'm so proud of her. Um, and I, I had thought about like how fun that would be to go play in the mud um, and climb over obstacles. But I never really took the time to really, really see what Spartan was all about. Um, and so she, she called me, um, like, I think it was like the week before the, the race. And she's like, Hey, you know, those races that I do in the mud. And I'm like, yeah, she's like, would you want to do one? I was like, yeah, why not? It's outside of the box. It's extreme. It's, it's, it's not a normal adaptive sport. So heck yeah, I'm all in. And it was a spur of the moment, like spontaneous thing. Like I didn't even hesitate. And she's like, all right, well, here's this guy named Zach. I want you um, to call him and he'll tell you everything you need to know. I'm like, all right, well, at this point, I really didn't know who Zach was. I knew he was like a team leader, but I didn't realize he was the founder or co-founder of the organization and team. Um, so I call Zach and immediately I know Zach is someone that's supposed to be in my tribe. Um, we have the same thick sense of humor. He's actually an amputee. Um, his fingers were amputated when he was 10 years old. He got them caught into a wheel, mm. super traumatic um, thing that happened. He had to break his own fingers to get mm. loose. And um, there was nobody around that could hear him screaming and he lost his fingers. Mm. Um, and so he, um, his, that's actually not, I don't really consider that his disability. I guess it would be, but his thing is more invisible. It's the PTSD from that event mm -hmm. that has dramatically affected his life. And also part of what gave him this crazy idea of taking people who are paralyzed out into a Spartan race. <laughs> um, thank God he made that decision to do that though. Um, so I get on the phone with Zach. It's like this perfect like connection. And I'm like, oh my God, like I love you already. And he's like, how, how soon can you get up to Asheville, which is where he lives. It's about two hours from where I live in Charlotte. And I'm like, well, I can be there tomorrow. He's like, all right, cool. So he sends me his address. I drive up to this guy's house, him and his partner, his girlfriend, um, take me out in this off-road wheelchair with ropes attached to it. And um, they take me through like a river and then like this paved trail. And I'm like, oh, like, this is it? Like, heck yeah, I'm ready. When's the race? <laughs> next, he's like, next weekend. I'm like, okay. Well, also little did I know, I had signed up for a super in Charlotte in April for my first race. And at that time, I did not know the difference between a sprint, a super, and a beast. I didn't even really know what a trifecta was. Right. So um, here I'm going in blind. And this um, is before they just... standardized the distances. So the super would have been like eight miles probably. Yes, it was eight miles. Yeah. <laughs> I think there a little bit over because it was a Garfield Griffith course. Oh, so Garfield likes to go all over the place. He did the one in Jacksonville where we met actually mm -hmm. this year. Okay. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I remember we weren't even halfway through the race and I was like, are we there yet? <laughs> <laughs> but I was having a blast and I met the rest of my tribe, um, the people who are now my safe people. They are the people that changed my life again, <laughs> as well as saved my life again. Um Doing a Spartan race is, well, number one, for me, 
where else can I go out and play in the mud and climb over obstacles in the woods with my friends in all different cities all over the country, right? Like right. Spartan races is it. That's it. Um, but then number two, the endurance and the agility and the testing of my strength that it took continued to help me in the same way that CrossFit helped me. I remember after crying some tears, jump doing that very first fire jump and completing my first Spartan race, which was the super. Um, I'm going to keep saying it was a yeah, super. Yeah, say that over and over um, again, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a super. We have to tell I them it was always, the super before the standardization. It was extra right, long. Right, right. It was extra long and extra muddy. It had rained like the days prior. It was a mess. Um, but I remember once we crossed that finish line and we were all, all, all done and all of us shed some tears, I realized what I had just accomplished. I had just accomplished something that when I first got paralyzed, I would have never in a million years even dreamt that I could have accomplished. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's amazing. And like, uh, I think it's so cool that you, uh, wandered into a CrossFit box, right? Uh, not only just because yeah. I own one out here, but because I think that, uh, oh. you know, it's like a big deal, right? Like, uh, people yeah. have this idea that it's impossible and that, you know, you come in day one and they're going to have you climbing ropes and, you know, this kind of crazy stuff. And that's just not the case. But the no, interesting thing about the CrossFit box and then now the, the Spartan super, and it was a super, mm-hmm. right? It was a super. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Don't forget it was a super. <laughs> exactly. Is your takeaway is always how you felt after. So, I mean, I feel like this is one of those points that people really need to understand. Like the first antidepressant is movement. And if you set a target for yourself and you move toward that target, you will feel better about yourself. There's no, it's impossible to feel bad about yourself when you're working towards something. Absolutely. I couldn't have said that better. Absolutely. Um, and, and going into something that once you're on course and you're like, Oh dear God, what did I sign up for? Because that's literally, I remember Jason, the fourth obstacle was the dunk wall. Oh, and it was cold. It was cold. And th- it will wait, 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 wait. First, it was the rolling mud going into the dunk wall. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget what I felt and the narrative that was playing out in my head as I'm going into this cold, stinky, disgusting, nasty water is, oh, dear God, what did you sign up for? Like, Erica, you really should start to research things a little bit more before you sign up for something. Right. I literally was like telling myself this. But then at the end, after that fire jump, I was in awe of myself. I was on a high that I don't think any drug could ever get you to. Mm-hmm. And that's what Spartan did for me. It made me believe in myself even more Absolutely. than I already did at Absolutely. that point. Because at that point I had I had started to really believe in myself a lot more because of CrossFit. Yeah. Of but course. then Spartan added a whole nother level to to believing in myself. Um and it, it was a beautiful thing and I became an addict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Dan, Dan Sullivan has this great thing. Uh, uh, the great business coach, Dan Sullivan talks about confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Like confidence comes after a thing, never before it. Yeah. And so if yeah. you, if you're too afraid or if you can't set fear aside long enough or employ enough courage to cause yourself to do a thing, even though you're scared anyway, you will never acquire confidence. And 
you know, Absolutely. listening to you. Stepping through... outside of that comfort zone. Exactly. Right? That's exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people, you know, people say that all the time, but they don't, I don't think really understand what that means. Um, it's about letting go of programs. It's about letting go of the person you are now fear. in favor of the person you want to become. And there's, yeah, there's a certain amount of fear and you have to bring courage to that. But at the end yeah. of the day, the confidence piece, the thing that you feel good about, right? That, that self-belief that only comes after yeah. the thing. It never comes before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in today's world, people sit alone, sit around in their house, watching the news, staying scared of everything and they don't do much. And then we wonder why depression is off the charts. So, um, I think it's super key that, that you pull that lesson out for them, you know, to, to piggyback off of what you just said, we throw in the COVID pandemic and the fear that has been instilled and you're like, like, what are you afraid of? Right. Because any of us at any given moment, and this is my take on on that and and it'll be short um my i am somebody who was quote unquote compromised right? right i don't have my lower abdominal muscles so when i get sick especially anything that's lung related mm-hmm. it's very hard for me to cough right and i like, have a productive cough and so i had all of these doctors and stuff in my ear like you know mask up like do all of these things well just so you know um the mask is actually very triggering to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have a mask and I do wear it as much as I can because I don't want to be that person. But my ex, when he would physically abuse me after I was paralyzed and I couldn't get away, there were a couple of times that he put a pillow over my face so that our roommates couldn't hear me scream. So I was able to identify through therapy that that's my dysfunction with the mask is having my nose and my mouth covered at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that now here we're almost a year and a half into this. I have um, been able to work through that trigger mm-hmm. um, and it's not as triggering as it used to be. But anyway, the whole reason I was telling you this is because my outlook on it, and I said this to my doctor and she like held her breath <laughs> because she knows me very well. And she knows that I'm very strong willed and I'm going to do what I want. So, um, I'm not going to jump on any bandwagon and live my life with fear. I have lived enough of my life with fear that now that I'm in the place that I'm in, I am no longer going to operate off of the vibration of fear. Right. And so my reply to her was, I could die every single day when I get in my vehicle and leave my driveway, I could die and it'd be at no fault of mine, but I still get into my car every single day and I still go live my life. That's right. Even knowing that I could die at any moment, because that is the reality of life, right? Like that is the one thing that is constant all the time is that one day we will die. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, That's actually it's inevitable. It is. A, well, it's, it's it's a beautiful thought when you think about it. You know, the stoic idea, the memento mori. You know, remember that you will die, uh, get off your mm-hmm. ass and live today, kind of a thing. And yes. I mean, people are yeah. The COVID thing has been such a mind fuck because people are so concerned yeah. with, oh, you know, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to do that. I'm going to. Well, I'm okay. What have you done we get for the sick last all the time? Yeah. Well, what have you done for the last eighteen months? You've you've basically yeah. been dead. You've done nothing. You know, so, exactly because you haven't fully lived. But you haven't fully lived, right? But even yeah. even beyond that, right? It's like, what were you doing before COVID? Were you really even alive before then, right? Like, yeah. And and the COVID is just a magnifier of okay. Well, what is my Absolutely. purpose? 
And now we have with the COVID thing, we've, we've seen things like domestic violence, uh, suicides yes. and depression. Child go through abuse. The roof. Right. So people have oh been, Oh my gosh, substance abuse. Yeah. People like, have been yeah. forced to face themselves. Right. And they're, what they're seeing, yeah. they don't like because they've been alone and cooped up in a place mm-hmm. isolated for so long. Right. So that, that, with themselves. yeah, that, exactly. That self-reflection piece is the piece that they've been sort of robbed of. Um, their mm-hmm. entire lives with distractions, you know, media, TV, whatever the thing is, yep. drinking, drugs, food, Limiting whatever the thing beliefs. is. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's been a, an interesting period uh, to see how people uh, cope with it. But it doesn't change the basic tools that people need to get through, which is like what you were talking about, going into the gym, doing hard things. Mm-hmm. And then coming through when my gym closed, Jason, when, when my gym closed because of COVID initially, Mm -hmm. um, I decided my, my, I call him, he's, I call him my little brother, but he's not biologically my little brother, but he's like my little brother. He's one of my best friends. Um, had just moved in with me, Mm -hmm. um, just to help me kind of make ends meet. Um, And he also trains um, and is an athlete. And so we very, very quickly decided we're going to turn the garage into a gym. There you go. And um, we did. We we initially just used what we had. Mm-hmm. And then slowly but surely through like Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and stuff like that found equipment and stuff that people were getting rid of yeah. um, because it was really, really hard to find new equipment because I think everybody kind of did that. <laughs> we're yes. like, Oh, I can't go to the gym. I've got to work out at home. I've got to go out and get some equipment. Yes. So uh, everything got really expensive and you couldn't find anything. And so we, I remember there was one time um, he ended up getting like this rig that we have in my gym now where we can do pull-ups and um, dips, like tricep dips, like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, And um, before we got that, I was actually using furniture in the garage to do tricep dips and pull-ups. And we were just creative. We just found a way to make it happen. Even if it was filling up a gallon jug of water and having one each one in each hand and, or, or he would set the jug of water in my lap and I would push up and down a hill in my neighborhood. And that mm-hmm. was the things that I was doing to get cardio and to train. Yes. Um, but we made it happen. And so it's just a matter of pushing yourself and holding yourself accountable to do that work. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, when, when you have an intention, I mean, the, the, uh, the mechanism will come to you, right? So like your intention yeah. was to get the work done and you figured out a way to make it happen that, you know, that that's yeah. just, that's the thing, right? Like, uh, if you're committed to something and you really have that intention set, it's going to, it's going to come to fruition for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that kind of leads me to my next thing that I don't know that you know about. <laughs> so we talked don't. about all of these, we've talked about all of these things um, that I've accomplished and where I am now in life, um, not just as a disability advocate, but a coach, a mentor, um, a speaker and an athlete. Um, I am now a recognized um, adaptive athlete in Spartan, um, which is super, super exciting. Um, I've had a couple of videos actually that Spartan has made viral. Um, Super exciting. Um, I decided in 2019, and it was funny the way, again, this was a totally spontaneous thing. So well before COVID hit, um, one of my teammates um, had made a post on Facebook talking about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. And I piped up and I'm like, I'm in. 
And so he text messaged me privately and he's like, are you serious right now? And I was like, what about Mount Kilimanjaro? And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm absolutely serious. And he was like, you really want to go climb the highest peak in Africa? And I'm like, uh, yeah, but not without you guys. And so we started to formulate a plan to do it. And then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And the plan, I was actually supposed to go in September of 2020. But because of COVID and all of the lockdowns, nobody could travel. Right. And so it was off the table. But it was, it was something... Um, that I was so passionate about doing um, that I didn't let that dream die. And we kept um, talking about it and manifesting it and doing what we needed to do or what we could do at that time to move forward towards that bigger picture of climbing mm -hmm. Mount Kilimanjaro. Right. Um, and I got word um, actually in January of this year that all thumbs were up. Um, Tanzania actually is not locked down at all. Um, apparently their leader who just recently passed away, um, believed COVID was a hoax. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, they don't have a lot of the same restrictions as other countries right now in Africa. So like right. for instance, South Africa is totally locked down, right. um, but Tanzania is not. And so, um, <laughs> it is now set in stone that on September 11th of this year, I will be flying out of New York City on September 11th, haha, -ha, universe, um, and flying to Turkey and then to Istanbul, um, Turkey, and then from Istanbul to Tanzania. And my team, More Hearts and Scars, um, the core of us, um, are going, they're going to help me reach the summit. Fantastic. Um, to take that a little bit further, um, I think even more importantly, um, during 2020, um, I had a um, very well-known investigative reporter who had just formed a production company with her partner um, to make documentary films um, reach out to me and interview me for a project for ESPN about adaptive athletes and how we are um, very underreported in the media. And... Um, she starts interviewing me about being a CrossFit athlete and a Spartan. And um, I think towards the end of the conversation, to hear her tell this story is actually really funny because she's like, you nonchalantly at the end of our interview said, oh, by the way, I'm climbing Mount Kilimanjaro next year. Right, right. <laughs> and, no um, and, I, and, and I do that a lot where because the, my motivation behind these things are not self-serving mm -hmm. they are to make an impact and to get my voice out there um so for instance me climbing kilimanjaro has nothing to do with the fact that i am a wheelchair athlete i'm climbing mount kilimanjaro because i want to continue to open up the conversation about mental health wellness and suicide prevention and make it less of a negative stigma so that people start to find their voice Mm -hmm. And we can start saving lives and adverting people from that path, from that journey. Yes. Um, so they know they're not alone. I wanted to do this so that I could then in turn, after I made the summit of Kilimanjaro, say, this is why I did it. Yes. Never in a million years did I ever think that this investigative reporter who is now one of my close friends was going to call me back a couple of days later with her production company partner 
and say, we want to climb Kilimanjaro with you. And we want to document this. That's amazing. Talk about an opportunity, right? Like that's just, that's just fantastic. Right. And uh, since February, I have been filming for this documentary. Oh, cool. Very cool. So it's it's already actually when you met me. Yeah. When you met me, um, I had just the weekend prior, um, I had just did my first session of filming. So they flew out from LA and um, they started documenting my whole story. Fantastic. And uh, I, I am, I am um, <laughs> beyond blessed. Like I tell people all the time, like I'm overpaid and I'm not talking about money <laughs> because I am wholeheartedly believe money is just a tool. Right. Um, I'm overpaid in life and that this film could potentially save lives. Oh. And that has been my passion from the beginning of my mental health journey is to use what I've already gone through to empower other people. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe you're not overpaid. Maybe you're paid exactly uh, the value that you're providing. Right. Which is, I think yeah. the way most of it works. Um, do you know, a, do you know a man named Kyle Maynard by any chance? I do know Kyle. Okay. Yeah. Cause you know, Kyle yeah. did Killy. Like I'm not he sure. He did what with was. no legs. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah. And actually another one of my really good friends who's also a para athlete. So she has a spinal cord injury about the same as mine. Her, her name is also Erica. Mm-hmm. Um, she also summited Kilimanjaro. She was the first female um, wheelchair user to do it. Kyle's a little bit different. Kyle is a bad ass. Yes. Yes. Quadruple this man empathy, did it with no. Yes. yes. He did it with no wheelchair. Yes. Yeah, he had little pads on his knees or what would be yep. his knees and elbows and just yep. basically crawled up the mountain. Uh, he in, did. Insane. Absolutely insane he determination. Is, he is actually um, the first person that I knew of that did it before mm-hmm. Erica did it. And what was what prompted me when I saw my teammate make this post about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, he mm-hmm. was what gave me the motivation to know that it could happen yes absolutely um was knowing that kyle did it i'm like you know what if kyle can do it i can do it yeah it's really interesting to see um you know like the different ways and approaches people have right so um kyle the way he did it he was more or less in control of his body as he went up the mountain you on the other hand like when we're at the spartan races you're being pulled by other people and then to a point to a point yeah carried and so like um i'm just specifically talking about jacksonville so jacksonville for those yeah, yeah, of you guys yeah. who weren't there was a total slop fest right like it's just mud yes, as far was. as the eye could see and you know so you know when i met erica she was being dragged basically through a marsh <laughs> right <laughs> yes, so, I was. She's being dragged through a marsh and so for me like i'm looking at this and i'm like shit right like that there's a certain amount of punishment that that goes into that but there's also for me as an outsider looking in there's a certain amount of trust that I'm not sure (laughs) that I would invest in every single person right and so um, when you and I connected we had come to a barbed wire fence that we either had to go over or under and Mm -hmm. your team was on one side and they needed someone on the other side of the fence to catch you because you Mm -hmm. had to go over the fence we couldn't go under the fence and, Correct. and so one of the gentlemen that you're with literally picked you up and like handed you to me in the air over yep. a barbed wire fence. And then I'm standing in knee deep mud. Right. So I could have fallen or dropped you at any point in time. Right. And so yeah. I, I feel like there's just a level of trust that you have yeah. 
that like the average athlete doesn't have to have, you know, like I don't have to have that uh, level of trust uh, on most courses. And I feel like that's a really special thing, like to be able to. It is. And honestly, that is. Yeah, that is one of the gifts that Spartan gave me was so I used to not be very trusting, especially when it came to my chair um, and and my body. I've been dropped. I've been thrown out of my chair. Mm -hmm. I've been inadvertently pulled out of my chair. Um, And so it was a really big fear for me and um, a really big um, hurdle for me to conquer as far as being able to trust other people. Because I know that nobody's ever intentionally dropped me, but (laughs) shit happens, right? Shit does happen. Yeah. And I, especially at a Spartan course. Yes. So um, I, um, it was a very big thing for me um, to literally the day that I did my first Spartan, Jason, I knew nobody except for Zach and his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the team that were helping me through this course, I just met. Yes. And um, yeah, it, it, it was a challenge, but I um, remember me talking earlier about my intuition and how it's very, very strong. Um, and I'm very in tune with my intuition um, as well as other people's energy. And so I'm a very good people reader. Um, I wish I would have used that in my life before therapy and reading respective partners. Um, but I wasn't not in that area of my life at that time anyway. Um, but I, I pick up on people's energy to a fault. Sometimes, um, if somebody is admitting bad energy or on a like sketchy, like frequency, I will retract and sometimes not even talk. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel that so strongly and I'm like, Ooh, that's a red flag. I'm not sure what I'm feeling right now, but it's uncomfortable. Yes. And, um, when I saw you standing on the other side of the barbed wire and you're like, how can I help? And I'm like, I think I said like, will you grab me or something? I don't know. And <laughs> you know, like, can, can you, can they hand yeah. you, can they hand me to you? Yes. I just, the way that you, I, I saw you from a distance already watching us. Um, but the vibration that I got from you was that you were a strong person that I could trust. Mm. And um, it's funny because the more and more that I have come in tune with that, um, that part of myself, I am almost 99.9% of the time correct. And it was, it was amazing because then I got to meet your beautiful wife (laughs) and we got to sit there and like chat a little bit and, um, yeah. And then here we are now. And I'm a guest on your podcast, which Absolutely. was just like an amazing opportunity for me that I'm, I'm grateful to yeah, you. Sure. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful for this connection mm-hmm. and um, being able to going forward, seeing all the goodness that you're putting out there. Oh, well, thank um, you for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it, was, it was a blessing to me um, to be able to connect with you that day on the course. Um, yeah, for sure. And you, you, to you, know that you, you were a trustworthy you. person. You read, me, you read me, you read me pretty well. Like I, I was sitting there, I was, you know, I, I mean, I, I didn't have any doubts that I could, you know, do what needed to be done. But if, if there were the chance that I was going to fall, like I had already decided that you would fall and I would be your cushion kind of a thing, right? Like, uh, I wouldn't I let you, that. I wouldn't let you hit the ground kind of a thing. So, yeah, but yeah, I think no. I said something like that to you. Yeah. Don't let me fall. Yeah, don't let me fall. Yeah. I, won't, I won't let you fall. So Yeah. 
that that's another one of the gifts that Spartan has given me is um, there have been other times out on course um, besides the Jacksonville race where a complete stranger is the hand that I grab. Yes. And it's just because it is the hand that's closest to me. And sometimes I do it because I can read them and feel that they need that. They right. need that sense of purpose. Right. Yes. It absolutely. gave them something to take away that was bigger than them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think and, that's, um, that's why we help people, right? Yeah. 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 And, and again, that's something that, although I'm filling somebody else's cup up, it fills my cup up too. Because I know that in me trusting them, that was a gift for them. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, that's you that's know? spot on. I, I couldn't have said that better. Absolutely. That's 100% right. Like, I mean, we all feel good when we're able to help another another person out, no matter what it is. And it's a gift for both parties, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and what could yeah. be better it's a than win-win. that? Right? Totally win-win. Exactly. exactly <laughs> absolutely. Right. Awesome, girl. So I know you've got a, a coaching business um, that you're building. I know you've yeah. been offering some online courses. Um, mm-hmm. And so tell me a little bit about um, your purpose around that. And then we'll go ahead and wrap this, yeah. this guy up. And uh, maybe we'll have to revisit uh, once you get uh, back from your Kilimanjaro trip. Absolutely. I would love that. Um, so yeah, I am, I know this is like a long title. So I am a certified life coach. Um, but my, um, I have, I I couldn't just narrow down to one niche initially. And so I started first in studying mindset and, um, that was the first certification that I got. And then I found out that there was something even bigger than that called a master life coach certification. And, um, what that entails is four other areas to work on. And so, um, I am trained in cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. Oh, nice. Um, CBT as well as, mm -hmm, as well as ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy techniques. Um, and so I actually use those in my practice. Um, but what my whole, I guess the, the, the easiest way to sum up, because I could tell you all of the different niches that I'm certified in, but that would be going over somebody's head. So the easiest way to explain what I'm able to provide my clients, um, that I coach is I help them learn new ways of thinking. Um, I, I help them find a new way of responding to life because that really is the key to life being good is our response, right? So like things happen to us all the time throughout life. We're always getting shit thrown at us. Um, but it's our response that determines that determines how we feel. And what we take from that situation, whatever it is. Um, And so for me, I learned um, once I started therapy and actually got my own life coach. I had my own life coach long before I ever thought about coaching. Um, My life coach is actually very nationally known. Um, His name is Steven Sisler, and he's actually a behavioral analyst. Um, He's written a whole bunch of New York Times bestsellers. And the way that we met was we were both speakers at an event in Oklahoma where we spoke to veterans who were transitioning from active military life into civilian life. Mm -hmm. And so I went and shared my story um, um, about changing response to life. And um, I, I apparently intrigued Steve And um, he ended up, um, when I was in the midst of just starting therapy, 
um, I reached out to him because he was somebody that I really, really looked up to. I had already read a couple of his books. And like I said, we had already kind of formed this little friendship um, from speaking together. And I inadvertently like reached out to him late one night and was like, hey, I'm really struggling and this is what's going on. And for whatever reason, the things that you say and that you teach just really resonate with me. And I know that I can't afford your services, but do you think that we could schedule a call to so that I can kind of pick your brain and, and maybe see if there are some things that you can give me about myself and my behavior and my personality that could serve me in a positive way in my healing journey? And it's funny because he immediately sent me a link and he said, I want you, this is my website. He's like, I want you to go on there and schedule yourself. I am going to take you on pro bono. Now, this man makes <laughs> thousands of dollars per event. Like he's, 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 he's really, really successful in what he does. Sure. Um, and um, he is an expert in what he does. He's been doing this for 30 plus years. And it was really funny, Jason, because when he did my initial assessment, he kind of laughed and he's like, I have never met somebody that has, their assessment has, has said the things that this assessment says. He's like, I'm afraid that you could find the good in a serial killer. He's like, <laughs> he he compared me to a Care Bear. You remember the Care Bears? Oh yeah, for sure. And they would do the Care Bear stare. He said, you are somebody who's in a constant Care Bear stare. Mm. And that can be potentially dangerous. <laughs> um, so he started working with me and giving me extra tools and exercises outside of what I was already doing in therapy that really, really changed my life. Um, but what he was doing with me was teaching me to love myself mm -hmm. and to fully accept myself. And um, it, it was, and it still is life changing for me. Um, so I had already been connected to a bunch of um, big stage speakers that I have worked with throughout my career of being a motivator and speaking at events. Mm -hmm. So I have met a lot of people. I'm, one of them in particular is Dr. Shafari Sisbury. Um, she is, um, she does conscious parenting and um, she is somebody that, um, I don't say that I idolize because I don't really idolize anybody, but she's somebody that I look up to and have a lot of respect for. Sure. And um, I, knew that really what they were doing was coaching. And I always knew that I intuitively that I am, I like to help people. Remember me saying in, in my, the midst of my toxicity and my mm -hmm. self-sabotaging, I became not just a people pleaser, but I wanted to fix people. Yes. I wanted to help them, yes. but I didn't have the right tools to do it in a healthy way for not only them, but myself, right? where I had a strict boundary there where I wasn't, I was helping them work through their shit, but I wasn't carrying their shit for them. Right. And Steve is the one that really helped me learn how to not carry other people's stuff mm. and have those boundaries in place for myself. Um, right. And to put myself first, um, and then that's a funny thing for me to say, especially as a mom, but I tell even my clients, you have to take care of yourself first yes. or you're not going to do any good for the people that depend on you. 
So yes. it's very similar. I always use the scenario when you get on a plane and the flight attendants go through the oxygen mask spiel, right? Mm -hmm. And they tell you, even if you're traveling with a young child, you always put your oxygen mask on first. Mm -hmm. There's a reason behind that. Um, and I use that a lot when I'm, when I'm teaching people this. Um, but I started to learn these things. And the more and more that I was coached, the more that I realized like, this is my, this is my purpose. This is my purpose. This is it. This is what God kept me here for. Um, and I started to see the bigger picture of the way my life had played out. And I also started to accept and also be um, full of gratitude for the hard, messy, scary times in my life because they literally set me up right in line and linear with this career path. Right. And I knew that I already was somebody that my friends um, always come to for advice. Like I've always been really good at helping other people work through their stuff, but not as good at working through mine. But when I realized when I started being good at, and, and accountable for working through my own stuff, I got even better at helping other people. Yes. Another win-win. Absolutely. And so when I first started coaching, when I first got my certifications, I was very quiet about it. And I never even announced that I was certified. Um, but I started taking on people. Initially, it was people that I already knew. I started taking them on as clients pro bono. And I would be extremely transparent with them and tell them, look, I am certified, but you're one of my first clients. So I'm still learning. But that's why I'm doing this pro bono. <laughs> Number one, to keep me um, to, to keep me protected from liability. Um, but number two, to gain experience and get good at it. And so I did that for um, a good year and some change um, before I got my first paid client. And that was a really hard thing for me because I did it for so long for free. Um, it was very hard for me um, to ask for compensation right. um, <laughs> because I genuinely didn't get into this for the money. Um, I got into this initially. I have other ways that I pay my bills. I got into this initially because I genuinely have a passion for helping people, yes. um, especially helping them through similar circumstances that I've made it through. And um, I now actually am to a place where I can quit my part-time job if I wanted to and solely just life coach. Um but I'm not doing that because I enjoy my part-time job and it gives me something else. It gives me an outlet that keeps me in the disability industry and community because mm -hmm. I part-time, I contract, I've been a contractor for many years, a disability consultant um, for companies within the disability industry. So first it started with wheelchair manufacturer um, and then it went into accessible vehicles um, where I helped market accessible vehicles. Um, I love that community and industry. And that honestly is where my heart is, is with other people with different abilities and showing them that there is life after injury. There is life. Even if you're born with a disability, you can still live a full, active, fulfilling life, no matter Absolutely. what. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I keep that part-time job, even though I don't necessarily need to anymore. Um, and it's helping me grow my business, having that extra income coming in. Um, 
I know that eventually I may come to a place where I'll have to step back a little bit more from the part-time job and solely focus on coaching because already I'm getting so many um, clients that it's getting a little hard to kind of juggle everything. Um, but it's super exciting and it's so absolutely fulfilling, especially when my clients have breakthroughs. And I actually had one yesterday that's a regular client um, who was able to put the tools that I gave them into use and had a breakthrough moment. And it was the best feeling in the world knowing that I had, I played a part in their healing and I played a part in them overcoming something that was keeping them stuck in life. Yes, absolutely. There's no greater feeling than having someone turn that light bulb on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is where I am. And, um, again, I'm, I'm tremendously blessed to be able to, um, to live the life that I'm living, but on top of that, to be able to reflect on my past and be grateful for even the not so fun parts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's about accepting all of life, right? Like we don't get to pick and yeah. choose just the good stuff, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so exactly. Often, it would be a lot easier if we could. Right, right. Yeah. Not possible. <laughs> and so, so often it's the crappy stuff that helps us find more good stuff, right? That's where, that's where we're squeezed and we're forced to grow. Absolutely. Well, so obviously you've got a lot on the go, um, athlete, mm-hmm. uh, speaker, coach, um, you know, obviously building a uh, business around that, uh, working on the documentary film for the Killy trip, which will be fantastic. I definitely want to hear all about that. Maybe we can. Get- I actually have a link that I want to send you when we're done. So we're doing extreme fundraising for the production. Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. to help take some of the burden of the cost for the film crew that's doing this. Um, so right now they're paying out of pocket Oh, for sure, um, yeah. to make Absolutely. this happen. And so we're doing a fundraiser to raise funds to um, put that back in their pocket. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, we'll um, we'll um, definitely link all that up in the show notes. Um, so tell me at this point in your life, you know, what does success look like for you? So for me, success looks like leaving a legacy that my children will be proud of making an impact on the world around me, a positive impact on the world around me. That to me is success. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's beautifully, beautifully stated. And so tell everyone listening how they can get in touch with you if they want to explore the services or if they want to contribute to the trip or if they just want to connect in some way, shape or form. What's the best way and, or pathway that you'd like to send them to? So um, right now, if, if it's somebody that is interested in coaching with me, um, I do regular life coaching sessions, um, but I also have an emotional intelligence course that I um, have right now that's going on um, that has been super, super successful um, for my clients that are taking it. Um, you can find me. I have a website um, and it's just www.ericabogan.com. Um, um, and then I am all over social media. I think the only social media, um, platform that I'm not as active on would maybe be Twitter. Um, but I am on TikTok. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I am on Twitter, but again, I'm not that active on it. Um, you can find me anywhere. Um, and, and it's just a matter of putting my name, 
um, Erica Bogan. I do have a professional page um, that I use. So if it's people that I don't necessarily know personally, I'm a little bit more leery about adding them to my personal page. Um, but I, uh, you can find me, at, it's just the handle at Erica Bogan, E-R-I-K-A-B-O-G-A-N. Cool. So er um, Erica Bogan everywhere, huh? Everywhere. Yeah. Awesome. You can actually even put that hashtag into Google and everything will pop up. Nice. Well, we'll so, link all that up in the show notes so uh, we can direct people perfect. to exactly where you want them to go and I'll connect with you separately on that. So my last question is always the same and that just comes down to what does wellness look like for you? So wellness for me looks like um, the wellness of mind, body, and spirit and exercising and consistently taking care of all three parts of those, um, those parts of our lives, mm -hmm. having something positive to believe in, um, taking care of your body, the only one you're going to get in this lifetime, also taking care of your mental health. Um, and if you're in a bad place, reach out and be really, really surprised at who may be going through or have already gone through the same thing that you're facing. 100%. Beautifully stated and very generous of you to offer that up. So there you have it, guys. We are coming to an end. I appreciate, uh, Eric, I appreciate you taking so much time with me tonight. I know it's probably late where you are. I think you're three hours ahead of me. So thank you for staying it's up late. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for staying up late out there in, uh, in North Carolina, my old stomping ground. I love that place out there. Hopefully I can get out that way and uh, see you in person again very soon. But thank you for Absolutely. sharing your story. That. I know it's going to be uh uh, incredibly impactful for anyone who takes the time to go through it. Uh, we'll get the show uh, edited and out for you guys. And on behalf of Erica and myself, guys, thanks for being here. Be sure and hit the like and subscribe button, and we will see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing, and by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.